And one thing that seems to be common with comedians, with funny people, is uh, at least some form of depression. And have you ever experienced any of that? Have you, have you had any a depression in your life? Uh, any sort of like you know long weeks on ends of just feeling down in the dumps? Yeah, um, that's interesting that it is such a common thing for us, and I don't really know why that is, but. I'm like, you know, clinically diagnosed with depression and I have been on an antidepressant for a long time now, maybe like eight years. Um, and then I have a really bad anxiety, which has gotten worse in the last year. So I've really changed a lot of things about my lifestyle in the last couple of months, um, which seems to be helping. But depression and anxiety are a huge thing for me. And yeah, there's a lot of us that that happens, but I think it happens with a lot of people anyways. But yeah, it was... Um, even when I moved here, you know, it's sunny, but um, when I get back here, there's, it used to be like a full week where I would just kind of be useless and stay in my room and sleep a lot. It's gotten better now, but yeah, there's definitely been times where I just want to hide. And what type of situations trigger your anxiety? Um... You know, I'm still trying to really figure that out. <laughs> uh, I think I just let my stress levels get really high and then anything. Like, I wish it made more sense where it was like, oh, if I'm ever in this situation, that's when I have, like, panic attacks or, if this, you know, but it's really kind of random. And I think um, when I'm not taking care of my body, that makes it the worst. You know, I'm not eating right or I'm not working out, stuff like that. Like, it really, like, I really have to, like, just maintain my body to to not have anxiety, which kind of sucks. But, um, yeah, it had never bothered me on stage until, like, the last month. But it got so bad that I would kind of feel like I was going to pass out. Um, so I'd be on stage kind of kind of tunnel vision, like, getting away from my body. But it was really me just, like, I guess having a panic attack that whole time. <laughs> but uh, people couldn't tell. So, do you, yeah. Do you find that you maybe put a lot of pressure on yourself? Uh, yeah, and I've always been like that. I was an athlete all the way through college. I played basketball. Um, and so, like, my grades and uh, extracurricular activities and athletics, like, I always just naturally put a lot of pressure on myself. My family never did that. And so I think that really carried over to all of this. I definitely I definitely put a lot of pressure on myself more than I need to. And it does seem like, indeed – that a lot of comedy sometimes comes from some sort of dark place or um, it, it, do you feel that this is the truth or could this be all a form of romanticism? Um, I think a lot of it does come or can come from dark place. I mean, a lot of it comes from stupid stuff too, but I've always had a theory that um, there's only two things that connect every person. And that would be that you laugh at something, you think something is funny, and then something hurts. There's pain. So I think it makes sense that those two things can go together. Um, and comedy is so, especially stand-up, it has to be relatable, you know. And I think that everybody can relate with being in pain. So. And you previously just now mentioned that you were involved in athletic activities. Uh, it seems like a lot of comedians aren't really that athletic, but it, it sounds like you may have been. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of us that were athletes before. It's an interesting environment for me to be in. 
because, yeah, there's definitely just a handful of us that maybe played in college or whatever. Um, and so we were around a, a lot of kids that, you know, they've always been in arts and they did theater when they were younger and stuff like that, which I never did. So definitely a, one, a different type of personality, but two, you know, a real different experience um, growing up. It's really on paper. It doesn't make sense that I do this, but I do. <laughs> and being that you do kind of have a little anxiety, how is it that you manage to muster up the courage to try stand-up for the first time? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I I thought about it for a long time before I ever did it. I think that was – so I got hurt in college, and I couldn't play basketball anymore. And so it was about eight months after that. I had been writing jokes for like a year just for fun and – you know, I knew in my head what I was going to do if I ever did an open mic. And after kind of, I think I was kind of filling a void um, when I couldn't play basketball anymore. It was such a big part of my life that I needed to find something else. And so I just did it. And it went well. And I still wonder now if it hadn't gone well, would I have kept doing, <laughs> kept doing it. But um, it took a long time, I guess, is the answer to that. Now, Monica, was there somebody that that inspired you to want to do this? Like, um, I don't know, some of the earliest female comedians, like someone like Roseanne Barr, for example? Um, yeah, I wouldn't say Roseanne, but I, uh, <laughs> I used to stay home when I was like 13 or 14 and watch, um, they called it Friday Night, so it was Friday Night Stand-Up is what was on Comedy Central, and they just did a bunch of stand-up specials like over and over. Um, and Maria Bamford was the first woman I ever saw on TV, and I was like, oh, we're allowed to do that? Like, I knew, like, Roseanne and some of these other people, Lily Tomlin, those people from, like, TV stuff, but I had never seen someone do stand-up. And I remember almost watching a Janine Grappolo special once, but my I was so young that my parents were like, you can't watch that. Like, she was still smoking on stage and stuff. She was still drunk at that time. Oh, my but, God. <laughs> uh, yeah, but Maria Bamford was definitely the first woman that I saw that I loved that was just like, oh, my gosh, we can do that. Um, but I used to watch a ton of trying to stand up when I was younger, which is kind of weird. But. And speaking of the thing with the cigarettes, that, that's interesting that you bring mm-hmm. that up because uh, I'll watch some old like comedy specials and stuff like that, and sometimes it seems to me like they really got away with quite a bit more back then for whatever reason. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, I guess with like smoking and drinking and stuff like that, you could kind of get away with that, you know, most places as a normal person. But like, there's guys now who will just start smoking on stage and no one stops them. Um, and also, like, I work in enough casinos now that you can do it. But there's even certain stages where, like, you can't bring up, even though it's not being filmed, you can't bring up a water bottle with a label on it. Or you can't drink on stage at all. Like, it just depends on where you are. So, it's, yeah, it's definitely different now. And this might be a really tough question to answer, but I'm just going to throw it at you anyways. And if you can't come up with anything, that's perfectly fine. But my question is, who, in your opinion, are the top three comedians of all time? Oh, wow. That is quite a question. Um, in my opinion, like, do I let's see? Because now I'm like, my three favorites would probably be different than who the top three of all time are, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I've always said, 
like the people I can still watch now and really laugh at that like were funny before. I really I think Phyllis Diller is amazing. I don't know if you've ever watched the set with her, but her laughs per minute and like tags is it's mechanical. It's uncanny. Um, George Carlin was always a favorite of mine. And then the last spot I would kind of either Richard Pryor or Rodney Dangerfield. Same thing with Dangerfield. Like it's just so fast, you know, just over and over. Like I don't think people really do that anymore. The way that Phyllis Diller and Rodney Dangerfield just is joke, 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 tag, tag, tag. It's just so fast and you can't, you can barely keep up with how funny it is. Uh, I think people don't do that anymore. So, and yes, everybody, those are sirens in the background. I don't think Monica's in any danger, but those are <laughs> Can signs. you hear that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. It makes us feel like we're right there in Los okay. Angeles with you. Yes. Her. It's LA. It's like that all the time. Maybe you'll get a helicopter, too. We don't know. They're riding again. Yeah. And so Richard Pryor, I find him to be hilarious. And one thing that I noticed that he would do is he was really good at dealing with hecklers. Mm-hmm. Do you ever get any hecklers or anybody you got to kind of shut down? Uh, do you approach the situation in a way like Richard Pryor might? Um, I probably wouldn't say I approach it the way he did. Um, he's a little more aggressive than I am. I do. I mean, you stumble across it from time to time. Most of the time, it's not people being malicious. Like, they're just drunk and they want to be involved. So half the time they're like, oh, yeah, that's true. Like, they're just yelling for no reason. Um, So sometimes, like, I'll get in conversations. And my brand a little bit and kind of the way I deal with this stuff is, like, I I like, like, positive thinking and stuff like that. And so we kind of become friends, like, when people want to be involved. Like, okay, let me get to know you. What's your name? Uh, And then I, like like subtly talk shit about them, but they don't really notice because they're drunk. So it's more, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I'm not going to like attack anybody, but um, I've only had a couple of instances where somebody in the audience was really like, I guess, malicious. And it wasn't really to me. Like we just had a guy stumble in drunk, didn't even know me, hear any of it, and then called me a bitch like from the audience. So then he got wow. kicked out right away. Um and then I had two guys get in a fist fight in the audience while I was on stage. So that was kind of weird. But Oh, my God. Over what? That, one of them kept talking. So, But he wasn't, like, talking. He wasn't, like, heckling the comedians. He was just kind of talking loudly to the audience. And the other guy was really irritated by it. Um, so, yeah, it was, yeah, that was weird. And I was just, like, standing. Like, everybody's watching him. So I was just, like, standing on stage with the microphone, like, at my side, watching these guys fight each other. So. Did they get broken up? Yeah, eventually. And the only guy they kicked out was the one who kept talking, so everybody was pretty happy with that. What do you think of Sarah Silverman? I actually, as of late, really love Sarah Silverman. Um, when I was younger, like I, I never really got into the Sarah Silverman program or like her older stand-up I hadn't ever really seen. But this new stuff, I love. Um, Speck of Dust, yeah, is her current Netflix special. It's amazing. She did an HBO one right before that. I think it's really, really funny. Um, and I've only watched a few episodes of her show on Hulu, but I enjoyed those ones. So. And you mentioned earlier that you've watched Comedy Central quite a bit. 
Are you a South Park fan? Um, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say. Not that I'm not a fan. I enjoy it. There's some episodes that I loved, but I I never watched it religiously enough to really, you know, be like a super fan. Like I would, all my friends would be like, oh, hey, have you seen the Michael Jackson episode or the Warcraft episode or whatever it is? And then I would watch it with them, but I wouldn't usually go out of my way to watch it all the time. So I enjoy it, but I wasn't such a big fan that I watched it all the time. Okay. Were there any... <laughs> are you a big fan? Sorry. Uh, not really, but I was going to okay. ask, are there any of the like cartoons sort of comedy shows that you like, like maybe The Simpsons or King of the Hill or any of them? Fair. I would say that Family Guy is probably the one that I watched the most of and really, really thought it was funny. Um, I watched Simpsons when I was younger, but it wasn't, I don't know why it never really, like, stuck with me. Um, yeah, so probably Family Guy. And one of the most famous South Park episodes is indeed the World of Warcraft episode, but <laughs> that that does kind of trigger me to want to ask you, are you a gamer at all? Do you play video games? I'm not, like, even a little bit, uh, but all of my friends in high school played a lot, and so... When we watched that episode, it was really funny because it was like, oh, yeah, this is what you guys do. Like, this is when I go over to your houses and you've been, like, in a cave where there's, like, empty bottles and shit all around them. You know, like, I was like, yeah, this is exactly what it's like for you guys. I don't know what, you know, the gaming references were, but I was like, yeah, this is what you guys look like. <laughs> and what do you do for, like, a hobby? Do you have any, like... <laughs> weird hobbies or abstract hobbies that we probably don't know about? It's huh. an interesting question. I mean, I don't think they're that, you know, that interesting. I, I like outdoors. I try to get outdoors as much as possible. So I go hiking quite a bit. Uh, I play basketball, but that's, you know, that's not that weird. Um, so you're, you're staying pretty athletic, sounds like. Yeah, yeah, I do. That's, um, yeah, definitely kind of what I do to keep, uh, when I have free time. You know, I, like, now that I think about it, I'm not great about doing things. I don't know, if we do trivia once a week. <laughs> I, yeah, I just, you know, I work a lot, and I'm always, maybe that pressure thing and the stress, maybe my work-life balance isn't great, but, um, I don't do normal stuff very often. Do you think maybe that putting pressure on yourself actually pays off? Because I, I remember uh, hearing a story about Charlie Chaplin would really pressure himself, and if anybody upstaged him, he would like go in the dressing room and cry. Do you think maybe that actually helps you, putting all that pressure on yourself? I do think there's definitely some benefits to to it. Yes, I do. I think there's a... I think there's a perfect balance in there somewhere, and I don't know, I haven't found it, of working really hard but being able to give yourself a break and, and feel good about the things that you've done. I think that's hard for people to do when they push themselves a lot. It's kind of you're always working on the next thing, so you forget to stop and go, oh, yeah, this is actually kind of cool that I did this. Um, so I think there is a perfect balance in there, and I do think it's very beneficial to always – kind of be moving forward. I have a big fear of complacency and I think that's why <laughs> why I'm always doing too much. But um coming from an athletic background that was normal for us. You know, like if 
things weren't going right. You just worked harder. You practiced more, you, you know, but it's not like that with art and stuff. You know, I can't get mad and just work harder on stage. That's not, it doesn't help if I'm mad, you know? Um, so now actually I'm definitely working on that balance and, you know, I meditate more and I, uh, work on some other writing things to try and get the creativity out of that and put it over here and, try to make my whole life uh, a little bit more balanced because I think that that actually does help the work part of it. Do you plan on having children in the future? <laughs> That's a big jump. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't want to, this is always a weird way to answer this, but I don't want to physically have a child. <laughs> um, I don't, um, but it sounds like it would hurt. Yeah, exactly. I worked with kids for a long time. I totally get it. I have um, I have a real kind of soft spot for, um, you know, creating citizens of the future. You know, like hmm. I, I like that idea of it. I do, I do think that I would be okay with a kid. Like, I think I would be a good parent. And I so part of that comes to it. But making it all work with well you know i haven't been in a relationship in so long that it hasn't it doesn't come up very often <laughs> um but i think i would i think i would want a kid i don't i talk about it on stage like i would never have them i think some people uh buy into that a lot but that's not it's not really true i think about adoption all the time <laughs> but i don't make enough money for that to like be a thing now but and you mentioned a little bit about your, you know, relationships and dating and stuff. Uh, how does that usually go for you? Are you into dating other comedians? Do you like basketball players? What what type of dude do you go for? That's interesting. Um, since I've started doing stand-up, I haven't, like, I've dated a few people, but nothing has been real, like, serious or long-term. Um, and that partially, well... I don't like people very often. <laughs> that sounds bad, but it's hard for me to like find a connection that I really think is worth it. Um, so if that has happened, it's usually not a comedian. I'm not really attracted to comedians at all. Um, but then you have to find somebody who understands uh, you and what you're doing enough to be okay with, you know, I'm gone a lot and um, they need someone who's independent and kind of doing their own thing. And, and I attract, for some reason, a very sensitive person, a very sensitive guy. And so that doesn't go over very easily with me being like, just so you know, I'm busy all the time. And then they're like, we don't hang out enough. So um, it just, yeah, it hasn't gone great. I think if there was a connection with someone that I thought was different and worth it, then I, you know, I can make adjustments. They can make adjustments. I think that's how it should work, but I haven't. Um, I haven't had that opportunity yet. Do you consider any male comedians to be hot, like maybe Chris Rock or Jerry Seinfeld? <laughs> Why would you name those two? Because um, I think they're hot. No, I'm just kidding. Do you think that's, that's your type? Um, trying to think. Who do I think is? I don't know. I mean, yes, I think there are some attractive male comedians, but I can't. I don't know, like since Chappelle started working out, I'm more attracted to him for sure. Oh, I am like, so like glad you brought now, up Chappelle. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought up Chappelle. 
Okay. Uh, but other than that, I mean, some, yeah, I don't know. There's younger guys that are newer that are good looking. Some of the older guys are, it's not really a thing to be like hot and a comedian. So that's a new thing for us. I think typically you'll go the comedy route if you don't like find yourself to be particular hot. Just a theory of mine. Right, but there, yeah, there's some guys. I mean, well, Jeff Dye, he's from Seattle actually, and he's a really good-looking guy and very funny comedian. So, but it's kind of a newer thing, I think. And speaking of Dave Chappelle, this is such an interesting topic because I know he's back now and he's better than ever. But what do you think of that whole thing where he had the show and he kind of melted down and flipped out and moved to Africa? Um, I secretly think that that is great. Not that he, like, had to be in such a stressful situation, but I do think being able to say no in Hollywood is is not heard of. You know, they weren't going to do it the way he wanted them to, and he knew he was getting stressed out and in a bad place, so he left. And I think a lot of people wouldn't do that. And so it kind of makes me happy that he's that he's back and he's being rewarded for really being exactly who he, he wanted to be as a person and a performer. So. And, oh, yeah, very interesting. But uh, circling back to uh, the dating stuff just one more time, is there any possibility that, like, guys might be freaked out that you'll turn them into comedy material? Um, maybe. I think I think a lot of people, well, in my normal life, people talk about it all the time. You know, oh, you're going to tell jokes about us, which is usually not true. Um, but my relationships, more than anything else, do end up uh, in the act, you know, or just dating or... Um, my family or so, you know, like that's, that's real stuff to me. That's what happens. So there's probably a better possibility that if I was dating someone, they would end up in there. However, I do have a real like kind of determination that if I was in a relationship, like a happy relationship, healthy relationship that I could make jokes that didn't put them in a bad light. You know what I mean? Like you could still be like, there's a few comedians who talk about their marriages and you're like, Oh, that sounds great. But pretty much everyone else, you're like, you make marriage sound terrible. <laughs> um, so I like, I kind of like that challenge. So if if it ever ever happens that I finally make a relationship work, I kind of like that challenge. Like I want to make jokes about my relationship, about my partner, but in like a positive light. Have you ever dated anybody that got like really threatened that you might be funnier than them? Um, not that I know of. I had like one kind of boyfriend, like on and off thing that was a comedian. This is the only comedian I've ever been with. And I think there was a little underlying jealousy, maybe on both of our parts, just because it's like, oh, you got that thing. But I didn't like we were pretty close to the same level. And so, you know, if he got something and I didn't or I got something and he didn't or whatever, it came up a few times, you know, and that was. I don't like I, I thought he's funny and he thought I was funny and we enjoyed watching each other. But I think that the, the whole industry part of it kind of makes you competitive a little bit. But other than that, in real life, I'm not really that like outgoingly funny. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I'm just more of a chill person. So if I'm in real life, like I'm totally fine not being the center of attention not being the funny one, like I enjoy that. So it doesn't come up that like that. 
Yeah, my last guest said the same thing. Uh, you're you're the second comic to come on the comedy month we're having, and he said the same thing. He's like, when I'm just out and about, I don't try to be funny at all. I'm just normal self, and I pretty much save it all for the stage. Yeah, I I, I mean, you know, I enjoy joking around and making little jokes and stuff, but I don't by any means need. In fact, like, I'm still a pretty shy person, <laughs> and so I kind of like just, just being there and having a good time, and people often are like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, have a great time, but just because I'm quiet, you know, so. And one thing that you tend to see here and there are is a type of comic that doesn't really go on stage to be outwardly funny, but instead they kind of try to make a lot of political sort of points, a lot of, like, philosophical, political stuff. Uh, do you dig that kind of humor at all? Um, I'm impressed by it. I think that um, being able to touch on social issues and politics and stuff like that is a real, it's a real acquired skill. Like, I think you have to really learn how to do that, and, and I'm not really that good at it so I do enjoy watching people who can really really do well at that um it's not my favorite type of thing just because from my point of view like my comedy I hope is a, a moment of relief for people whatever is going on in their life they can forget about it for a second and watch me make fun of myself or whatever and um and then bringing up something that especially right now is so touchy like politics Sometimes I feel like that can maybe remind remind people of how shitty things are, but but some people just they 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 they're so good at talking about politics or social issues that they make everyone feel included no matter what, um, and still like kind of pointing out these flaws in it all that you don't think of, you know. And I, I do enjoy watching that. I just I'm not good at doing it. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, now that you bring it up, that's a good point. Some people seem to be able to talk about that stuff without being, like, super offensive and trollish. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, and I don't really know what the what the difference is. I think you kind of, like, you have to kind of play the middle, and I think some of us are afraid to do that because, you're like, well, what if someone thinks I'm, I'm on that side, but really I'm, you know, really liberal or whatever. I don't know. So I think you kind of got to be able to, to play the middle of it and make sure that everybody feels comfortable. Or are you pointing out this point that neither side can be like, that's not true. You know, everyone's like, Oh, that's kind of funny. I never thought about it like that. So it's a little, it always seems dangerous to me. I also don't think about that stuff too, too often compared to, you know, just life in general and trying to get through that part of it without worrying about the politics. So my writing is usually just more centered around that. So it, it seems that you're you're sustaining yourself. I mean, not to uh, you know get into your business, but it seems like you're able to sustain yourself. I mean, this isn't a side job or a hobby. You're actually making a living doing comedy. Do I have that correct? Um, you do. Yeah, this is where most of my money comes from, and I guess all of my money comes from comedy somehow. You know, I have a podcast and some other things, but um, but yeah, this is all I do, and it's been over. It'll be two and a half years that I haven't had a day job. So, did you ever think this was going to happen? Did you ever think you'd actually make this into your job? You know, when I first started, probably not. I mean, I was still in college, and I I thought like, oh, this, you know, I I owe it to myself to try because I've been thinking about it for so long. But you know, I was ready to use my degree and 
you know, the uh, my degree is in sports and exercise science, <laughs> so I was ready to like coach and whatnot. Um, but then as it went on, I think when when I first not when I first started, but in my first few years, people would ask what my goal was, and I was like, I want this to be the only thing that I do. Um, and now that that is true, I have to kind of you know you got to kind of reevaluate and be like, all right, well now, how do I make this? Because the goal can't be to just do this forever and make a little bit more money at it. You know, you kind of got to reevaluate and see, okay, well, I did exactly what I said I was going to do before. So now what should I say now? You know, because that can happen. What do you think of a guy like Carrot Top who uses the prop-based humor? Um, that's interesting. I think... I mean, I think he did it his own way. I kind of like people that do different stuff. It's, um, I think it's funny, you know, and then to have, I feel like he's one of the first real guys like that, that was like, you know what, I'm just going to stay in Vegas and do this all the time. Instead of having to go to people, they can come to me. And I like that of people just being like, yeah, I'm going to do it this way instead <laughs> He's he. Uh, I do think he's funny too. He's a little, little bit more energy than I like, but also I think it's very. It's got to be a lot of work for somebody to think about all those different, you know, crazy props that he uses. So silly. <laughs> and is there anybody that you just don't get? Like somebody that you hear about, and you're just like, ugh, I would never laugh at that. Hmm, that's a good, okay, I'll be, well, no, that's not true. Um, I was going to say, and this is kind of a cliche thing to say now because people don't like him anymore, but I actually really liked a couple of his own. Dane Cook never really, like the energy level never really did it for me because he's like so just kind of crazy and aggressive. So I never really liked watching his specials, but uh, listening to his albums, because the jokes are actually really well crafted. You know, he just adds so much with the physicality of it, and I don't need that. But um, so, yeah, I don't necessarily hate him either. <laughs> I think – I don't know if there's anybody I'm just – I think there's people where I'm like, that's not for me, but I can see why other people like it. You know what I mean? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Did you – were you ever – once again, this is kind of a stand-up comedy thing, and that's why I'm asking, but were you ever into, like, partying, drugs, cocaine, heroin? Did you ever dip your beak in that sort of stuff? Yeah, it's so funny because I was just thinking about – so I turned – I'll turn 28 on Tuesday. And um was just thinking about that, like, 27 rock star thing, you know? I was like, oh, I only have a week to, like, die before <laughs> I'm not a rock star anymore. Um uh, but no, so yeah, I went through a few periods, honestly, of, of just drinking a lot, um, doing drugs. Yes, but not to the point where it was like, you know, I was doing it all the time. I've done a fair amount of cocaine, but not, um, I didn't really like it. <laughs> so I, I kind of eventually decided like, man, that's not for me. I've done ecstasy a few times, but otherwise usually more like I'm like a weed and mushrooms kind of person. Like I'm like, oh, it yeah. comes from the earth. It's fine. Um, but yeah, there was definitely some, I have one DUI, you know, like there's definitely some points that weren't good with the drinking, but I never did heroin. <laughs> so I take it. You must be happy that 
pot is legal in Washington and California. Yeah, definitely. That's um, yeah, I think it's great. <laughs> I don't, I don't smoke as much as I used to anymore because of the anxiety, but um, but I do, I do love it. And honestly, uh, now that I'm taking so much better care of my body, the alcohol really is what I feel like has ruined my insides more than anything else. So. If I can get back to the weed, I think that would be great <laughs> and just not drink. Do you feel like pot might help you come up with jokes? You know, when I'm high, I do. But then <laughs> I read it the next day and I'm like, that is not funny. Why did I think that was so funny? Uh, I have I've sat down on purpose a few times when I'm stoned and really gone for it. And... um. It's not. Yeah, it's just not as good as I want it to be. I'm trying to think of when it's when I'm the most relaxed. So maybe that could be part of it. But I think of the most stuff when I'm in the shower, or right before I go to bed, or sometimes when I'm in the car. Like those are my three places that I really like come up with some good stuff. And those and it's never intentional. You know, I can't. I sit down and I'm like, you're gonna write a joke now. It just doesn't work. So it sounds like you actually kind of have a ritual, like you, you get in the shower and the warm water starts hitting your head and it starts to kind of come to you? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, my, my mind wanders to the weirdest places there. You know, I think when I'm working or I'm doing something, my thoughts are very, like, stressed and this is what's going wrong and, and then I'm trying to redirect that where I'm like okay think of something positive you know so it's very pointed and I'm in control of it but when I'm in a situation like that I don't really I'm not in control of it I just kind of let it go and then weird stuff comes up and um, that it gets very hypothetical sometimes which I think uh, brings me to jokes or you know it'll take a situation that I've been in and then it'll add this whole other element to it this whole funny thing that I'm like well what if that happened or what if this was said you know and then that's a bit so so yeah it's that when I'm relaxed and I just kind of let my mind do what it's what weird shit it's going to do <laughs> instead of trying to kind of grab onto it all the time and what is it about shrooms that you like so much um I like shrooms I don't know. I, I felt good. It was fun to like, you know, everything looks different, but I never had, you know, people talk about like, oh, the Cheetos bag was talking to him or what, like that stuff never happened to me. Um, I do have a bit about seeing Barbara Streisand in a rock, but it just looked like it. She wasn't talking to me or anything. Um, but I think it, like I'm still just kind of chill and you know, the thing with the uppers and, like, the cocaine and stuff is, that, one, it feels like I'm putting something synthetic in my body that I shouldn't be. Um, but, two, like, I'm, like, I'm not a very high-energy person, so when you give me it, I don't really know what to do with it. You know what I mean? I'm like, ah, I feel like I'm freaking out a little bit. So um, I think the mushrooms is, like, okay, I'm high, but I'm still, like, grounded in being me and relaxed, <laughs> if that makes sense. Did the shroom thing, did that start in, like, college or high school? Um, I didn't do shrooms until after college, I think. Yeah, um, until I was hanging out with comedians. That's when that started. Um, I started smoking pot when I was in high school, but I wouldn't do it very often because of sports. And then in college, too, like, during the season, I wouldn't smoke pot at all because they could drug test us. But then when I couldn't play anymore, I started smoking a lot of pot, and then... Um, 
uh, I moved in. Well, another comedian moved in with me, and uh, he smokes more pot than I've ever seen anybody. Uh, but also, he's like, "You done shrooms?" I was like, "No, but I kind of want to try it." And then I did it with other comedians, and then I was like, "Okay, I like this." So we, like, I've done it a few times. It's one of those things though where you're like, "Good thing we made it back from that one, brain." Like you don't want to do it again right away. So <laughs> I kind of like that part of it too. Do you, did you ever mix shrooms with pot? Yeah, and I sorry, it was uh, clearly a traumatic time. Um, <laughs> we did. That was the problem. We didn't. I, it was me and my roommate at the time, and we just did a little bit of shrooms, but then we smoked hash, and I couldn't like really differentiate what was what, and I was so hungry, and then I just laid on my bed and stared at the ceiling for like a long time. <laughs> And then fell asleep. So it wasn't like a good mixture. <laughs> and to kind of uh, get off the the subject of, of drugs, I know it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. <laughs> okay. Uh, I did want to ask the state of stand up comedy, and I, I hope this isn't like depressing or anything, but <laughs> I remember, like, when I was a kid, like, back in the 90s, stand-up was huge. Like, mm-hmm. it was really big, and all of these comedians were getting their own sitcoms, and they were just, like, super popular. Does it seem to you like that has kind of died off a little bit? I think recently there was another little surge, you know? There was a lot of uh, people you were seeing on TV that did start in stand-up, but now we're getting into this territory of, like, everybody's getting in trouble, and um, I think we might be going into a little dip. It goes in waves, though. There was, like, a boom in the 80s, and then a boom in the 90s, and then, you know, and then a dip, and then there was, so, um, hopefully, you know, there's people like me who are going to do it through the whole thing, but, um, I I think people now are really innovative and, you know, you see that with like the podcasting environment or people making their own stuff and putting it online or whatever. Um, I I think maybe that's going to come into play a little bit more. If people are going to start saying no to comedians and this isn't what we're doing, then they might just change it themselves. And Monica, do you have a podcast? I do have a podcast. Um, It's called The Hug Life. Um, we are on the Potaholics Network, and my co-host is Mike Coletta. He's also from Seattle. What kind of stuff do you guys talk about? Uh, if you weren't already irritated by it, uh, we talk, it's a positive podcast. <laughs> we talk about good stuff. It's very silly and dirty still, but uh, we do, like, good news stories. We positive spin a different topic every time. Um, so, like, if you were going to positive spin um, PC culture or something that you'd say like, oh, it's good because of this, whatever. We play a couple games. We do a silly quiz. The idea is that, you know, you kind of forget everything sucks for an hour. And um, it's really fun. We have fun. We have fun guests, mostly comedians, but we've had some, uh, you know, musicians. We had people from pageants. We had somebody from the military, um, stuff like that. It's, um, yeah, it's really fun. I think it'll be three years in August that we've been doing it. Or maybe, no, maybe four. Oh, God. How often do you do a show? Uh, once a week, and we put them out on Wednesdays. Uh, yeah. And, Monica, why is it that you call yourself a bitch? 
Um, I have, I think it's a defense mechanism, actually. <laughs> I think if I tell people that, then they won't get close enough to me. Um, no, I, I have a very natural, like I can't control the expressions on my face. So if I think you said something stupid, you can kind of see it on my face. I'm also a little standoffish and pretty quiet. And so I think that comes off, um, I've been told as intimidating, um, and kind of like a bitch. And so I, I just kind of went with it and I'm, I'm fine with that. I don't think I'm a mean person. I actually think when you get inside the circle, I'm a little bit too nice to be like, I'll give people shit that I shouldn't, stuff like that. But, um, my external, uh, which is just, you know, being a determined woman is frequently considered being a bitch. So, hmm. <laughs> and, would you say it's harder being a female comedian than a male comedian? Um, is it harder being? I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I, I think there's differences. I do think it is different being a female comedian than it is being a male comedian. But it's different being a woman than it is being a man, anyways. But some of the things you know that we deal with, um, I've had happen and regular day jobs and you know people are going to say stuff and hit on you a lot of places so you just you just kind of deal with it i mean it uh, i don't know is, this, people, is this like a me too thing did something happen oh no i don't know no i think you just you know people say shit all the time it's not a <laughs> um so no one you, in the, no one in the kinda, business has tried to sexually harass you um i don't think so i mean I've gotten, I don't want to say they're like in the business. I get a lot of messages and um, some inappropriate stuff like online. I don't think anybody's really done anything uh, in person that I can think of. But, uh, but, but that's where the bitch thing comes from. I'm so standoffish that I don't let people close enough to do stuff like that. Um, do you think which maybe- isn't like anybody else that's not necessarily like their fault, but. Do you think um, maybe that they feel like they can get away with saying, like, lewd stuff to you because you are a comic? Yeah, I do. Um, yeah, how often I've heard, like, oh, she, it's fine, she's a comic, or oh, she, it's, you know, um, oh, you can take a joke, that kind of thing, to me or other female comedians. And I'm like, just because you said that doesn't mean uh, what you said wasn't offensive or inappropriate or whatever. How do you feel about feminism? How do I feel about feminism? Um, I think it's great. I'm definitely a feminist. I, But I think there are some, one, I think there's some misunderstandings about it. Two, I think we're having issues with intersectionality. I think there's um, almost some factions within the feminist movement. <laughs> um, I think... Um, yeah, but I'm all all for women being equal and being treated that way and paid that way. <laughs> Do you feel that what you're doing is kind of an expression of that? Um, a little bit. I feel like my life has kind of always been an expression of that in that, you know, my parents taught me that I could do whatever I wanted to. And so I picked two things that aren't, you know, standard female choices. I wanted to be a basketball player and then I wanted to be a stand-up comedian, you know. <laughs> um, 
So, yeah, I guess a little bit. I don't know if it was intended, but me sticking to it and being like, no, I'm going to do this because I want to, I think speaks to that a little bit. And this might be a weird question, and I ask because I know you're a fan of sports and athleticism. Are you into the cage fighting or UFC stuff at all? Um, That's an interesting question, actually. I do not like the UFC stuff because they can hit each other in the face. So I do like um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and like Eddie Bravo rules because, well, just now they started slapping each other, but you can't, like, hit each other. So it just looks like it's more tactical, it seems like to me, but also it just looks like really buff people, like, cuddling aggressively. And it's, like, (laughs) it's really fun for me to watch. So I actually do enjoy that, and I've gone to – I went to an EBI um, here in L.A., and that was really cool. Um, Sounds like like you're kind of – sorry, sounds like you're kind of into this sort of thing. Yeah, I kind of – a guy who does a lot of editing for me actually works for one of the – uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu like leagues or whatever I guess I don't know what they're called leagues tournaments whatever they and he does like their video stuff and so he's gotten us tickets and he'll like send me stuff and it's really interesting um, and it's I don't know I I still probably relate to athletes a little bit more than I do to artists so I kind of like watching that and like you dedicating your whole life to this training and this type of it's, it's kind of fun to watch, you know, they're, and they're still really like that's just watching any athlete that is so well-trained is fun. You know, it's impressive. Um, yeah. I just don't like the blood and them hitting each other in the face though. So <laughs> how about Joe Rogan? Do you like him? Uh, yeah, I do. And I kind of like his, um, I think a lot of us, or a lot of people think that we're supposed to be sad and broken and all of that stuff. And I think Joe does a good job of being like, no, I can be a person who takes care of my body and is married and, um, you know, is positive and athletic and still be really funny. Um, so I do like that part of it for sure. I don't, I don't like listen to his podcast or anything, but, uh, I do like him. Yeah, he's kind of, uh, you know, I don't listen all the time, but he, he's almost kind of like the godfather of podcasting, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. He got in there and he started it, and people love what he does. So I think it's great. How about his stand-up? Do you, do you like his stand-up? I actually really do like his stand-up, um, probably more than what I've heard of his podcast and him on other podcasts. I like his stand-up a lot. How do you feel – you kind of touched on this earlier, but how do you feel about uh, really racial or sexual types of humor? Um, that's interesting. I I mean, I'm a big, like, if you if it's funny, it's funny kind of thing. Um, with that said, I, I love innuendo for some reason. So the more, like, graphic and blunt things are, especially, like, sexual or whatever, it's, like, not as funny to me for some reason. I don't know why. Um, mm-hmm. but I don't really have a problem with it. Um... Racial humor, I don't know. I feel like if the audience likes it and they're, you know, and for the right reasons and it's funny, then then that's fine. But I feel like some people get upset when they do something where you're like, yeah, that was racist, and then the audience doesn't like it, and they're like, oh, there's something wrong with you. And I'm like, no, they just don't like it. That's okay. Um, but, yeah, I, don't, I mean, if it's funny, it's funny. That's 
how I feel. <laughs> is the world starting to become a little bit too politically correct? Um, I don't know if politically correct is the issue. I think that we're afraid to talk about stuff at all. It's the, like, being PC is just kind of being nice. It's, um, you know, if you tell me you would rather be called something and I'm like, nope, I'm not going to call you something different, that's, that's just not being nice, you know? Like, if I told you my name was Monica and you're like, well, I'm going to call you Becky. I'm like, no, well, that's not my name. Um, that's different, I think, than being we're doing this thing where somebody will be like, okay, I'm going to talk about race and my experience uh, being a person of color. And then the audience is like, and you're like, why are you tight? Like this is, it's not going to be bad. Or if people are like, we're going to talk about politics, then everyone's like, oh no, this is going to be, and it's like, you're not even giving them the chance to uh, say something funny or be, you know, they're probably on your side. But I think, I think we're just, it's not, political correctness, but maybe that's where it came from. But it's it's just that we're afraid to even talk about stuff at all. Are you against censorship? Yeah, I think that it, it's almost an evolution thing where, where we censor, you, cen- you censor us anyway, you know? If somebody is so offensive that enough people are like, no, I'm not going to watch this, then you're not going to get a special. You're not going to have a show, you know, those kinds of things. And you always have the option of not watching or not, you know, not going to it or not voting for that person. Like you always have that power. And I think people, one, I think people are bored and they need to get in other people's business or something, you know, like who you marry or any of that has no effect on me. So I don't give a shit. Like I don't, you know, and so if you do, I think you, your life, congratulations is so stressless that you can you know put shit on other people um yeah i don't know where i was going with that but you know what i mean (laughs) well this next question this is something that i think is is probably going to come up again when i'm interviewing comedians but uh it's the topic of going on stage and and completely bombing out have you (laughs) ever bombed and if so how did you deal with that I don't, and this, this never sounds great, but I don't remember a time where I've gone up and um, see a bomb, like a real bomb to me is like, this is a good audience, other comedians have done well, you go up and somehow just fuck it up, like you're, it's terrible, like that's a real bomb. I've had situations where like everyone is bombing, nobody's getting any laughs, this crowd, it's not fun, you know, I've had those situations. When that happens, um they love it when you comment about it, you know, you're like, Oh, you guys hate me. This is, you know, they want, they don't want to hear your material, which kind of sucks. And so you got to just like do crowd work and talk to them and, you know, whatever. Um, so what you're saying is there, there's sometimes a point where you have to kind of shut down what you're doing and switch directions. Yeah, absolutely. That happens for sure. So that so in that case, uh, some impro- improvisational stuff is going to come into play. Definitely, yeah, and that's where you know you see the yeah, and again, I'm never really aggressive, but it's where you see the you know comedian destroy a tech or that type of stuff is when that audience wasn't doing what he wanted. You know, it wasn't like he just went out and was like, 
started insulting people, you know, they weren't, they weren't, uh, they weren't into it. They weren't having a good time. And then, or, or at least somebody wasn't. And then it leads to this crab worky, let's talk about it. Clearly you're not going to allow me to do my material type of situations. And Monica, this, this is end of days radio and this is normally a paranormal show. So I, I just got to ask you this. Do you believe in aliens? I do. You do? Uh, yeah. And I, I think they're already here. And <laughs> it's a weird thing to be like, Oh, yep. Um, cause I seem like a pretty, uh, boring person, not boring, but normal person. Um, yeah, I'm all about it. I can't, um, I just couldn't imagine that the universe could be so big, even bigger than we can really comprehend, and there wouldn't be something else, right? Like, that just seems, one, very arrogant of us to be like, nope, we're the only ones that that are alive. Um, so, yeah, maybe they're not already here, but still. <laughs> um, no, I'm with you. I think they're already here. In fact, yeah. I think they're walking among us. Yeah, I think... Um, I do, I am recently, you know, I think a lot about weird stuff, but the more things are happening for me lately, I'm like, okay, this is something different. This isn't, yeah, there's some, the energy, the power, all of that stuff is is something than I ever thought it was. And yeah, there's just no way that the universe is that big and um, we are somehow just the only thing. Hmm. Now, have you ever had a paranormal experience? Um, I have. I don't really know if it was. It's such a weird story, and I don't think I've really told it on anything. But I, so I was in Spain. It's the only time I've really been to international trips ever. I think I've been to Canada before. Uh, I went to Spain my senior year in high school, and we were in. Um, Seville, right? Yes, you're in Seville. There's a cathedral there. It's like the biggest one in uh, Western Europe or whatever. And Christopher Columbus is buried there. whatever. And so, like, walking around it, and on the back side of the altar, there's this um, this really small room that you kind of have to step down into. And every time I walked by it, my heart would start racing. Like, I wasn't looking at it or anything, but I would just walk past it. Um and it, like, was really, like, noticeable and bothering me. And so I started going around and asking, like, the security guards and the people who work there. And I was like, what is this room? Mind you, it's, like, my Spanish. And none of them knew who it was or what it was. And then I went and I just stood in front of it and I stared at it. And it had, had like, these two, like, coffin-looking things on the side of it. And then it had just, like, a engraving of a crucifix above it. And I just stared at it. And I had like this vision, <laughs> this story, I haven't told this story in so long. Um, and it was really weird. It was me on my knees uh, with my arms out in like what I would describe as like two monks holding my arms. Okay. And then, and I was like, oh, that's really, that's such a weird thing. But I have a pretty active imagination. I didn't think too much about it. But then, you know, I'm telling some of the other students in the group and I'm like, this is really weird. I feel weird. This is what happened. So then we go to this other museum and we walk in. And the first painting on the right side was exactly what I had described, only with Jesus on his knees. Oh, wow. <laughs> to the point where I, like, just stared at it, and I, like, tapped uh, one of the kids I had told and pointed to it and didn't even have to say, like, oh, this is what – like, I just pointed to it, and she was like, oh, shit, that's what you just described. Um, 
so that like that still sticks with me. I've tried to look up so many times, like if anybody else has a picture of that room or what it is, like I just can't like I feel like I have to go back to it. I don't know. And I can't explain any of that or why that would Yeah. Interesting. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and yeah. what about what about conspiracies? What do you think of these people that uh, think that 9-11 could be an inside job? Um, I think some of the conspiracy theories are pretty, pretty out there. But um, I think there's plenty of stuff that the government is doing that we don't know about. I don't know that necessarily. So it's not too far-fetched to be like, there's stuff they're not telling us. I don't know if it's as... Um, you know, they they blew it up from the inside kind of thing because, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I was watching the Today Show and I watched the second one fly into the building. Um, so, like, that's maybe not that far, but I do feel like there's there's stuff that we don't really know. How about Sasquatch? Not Sasquatch? Um, I think maybe it's well, yeah. I don't know. He was the Sonics mascot, so that's real enough for me. Um, <laughs> I no, remember I, that back when we had a basketball team. Ah. Right. Exactly. Uh, I don't know. I, it wouldn't be that crazy. I don't think. I mean, something that walks upright but is still hairy—that's not out of the line of evolution. So why wouldn't it? There's just maybe not a lot of them. I don't know. Were you a pretty big Sonics fan? Yeah, that's what we had when I was real little. You know, we there was no WNBA until I was well in Seattle, at least until I was ten. So you know, we only watched the Sonics. I wanted to be Gary Payton. There are still two uh, Gary <laughs> Payton posters on my bedroom wall, literally in my apartment as a almost twenty-eight year old year old uh, adult female. So oh, I used to love Gary Payton. He was the he, glove. Yeah, he's my favorite, and that's you know I was a point guard, and he's all I had to watch. So. Yeah, I love the Sonics. It's great. And I, I take it you're into the WNBA? Yeah, I do. Uh, I do pay attention to the WNBA. I mean, there's still a team in Seattle, which is nice. So Yeah. Yeah. And which city do you like better, Seattle or Los Angeles? Um, definitely Seattle. There are good things about L.A. and they're very opposite of each other except for traffic's pretty much the same and the prices. But, um, yeah, it's like everything I like about Seattle, I don't like about L.A., but then the things that you don't like about Seattle are the things that I like about L.A. So it's kind of nice being able to go back and forth. Does Los Angeles have a lot of shallow people? I don't know. This is how I explain this. I think people – I do. Yes, they do. They also have a lot more people in general. Um I think the city makes you weird because it is so industry-based. Like New York, there's so many more people, and it's so dense that you're around normal people all the time. Like famous people can go into bagel shops or whatever and just kind of hang out. But here, everyone is in the industry pretty much, and famous people don't go out places and except, you know, Beverly Hills and stuff. They kind of segregate themselves, and so it, it makes you – I think it makes people on guard all the time. Like, what can you do for me? Where you're obviously in the industry, so am I. Like, that's it. Just makes people weird. So, I don't want to 
think that there are no genuine people. I think they're just acting weird. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because uh, that's kind of how you – uh, progress yourself sometimes is by knowing the right people, shaking the right hands, and being at the right social gatherings. Yeah, definitely. Do you feel a lot of pressure to be part of that whole scene? Um, not really. Like, I, I probably should, <laughs> but I don't. Like, I, yeah, I, I like the distance and the, um, you know, there's people in comedy that I have become friends with that I know are good, good people and genuine people. And we connect on a on a level that's completely outside of anything that's in the industry. But um, there are also situations or when people are like, well, we got to do this because this person will be there. And I'm like, I just don't want to really be into that um, type of thing. Like, I probably, yeah, you're right. Like, I probably should be, but I'm, I'm not really. And I'm gone a lot, so. Have you ever run into anybody walking on the street in L.A.? Have you have you run into Tarantino or anybody like that? We saw William H. Macy one time. Uh, uh, I saw Marlon Wayans in a yogurt shop. Um, but other than that, it's like a lot of comedians I've worked with are pretty well-known, but if I run into them here, like we know each other, so that's... Cool. And then, I mean, you go to the comedy store or whatever, Laugh Factory, those big clubs, there's always people that are pretty famous there. So, um, would yeah. you, Monica, would you ever go on a sketch comedy show like Saturday Night Live? Yeah, for sure. That's, uh, I don't think I would, you know, I, yes, I would. If that was an option, yes, I would. I don't think I would be what they were looking for except for like a weekend update type of thing. But the writing for that and just like, yeah, that's, I think that's interesting to me. And to kind of jump topics once again, how do you feel about our current president, Mr. Donald Trump? Um, uh, how do I say it without being super crazy? I think he's an idiot. Be crazy. Be super crazy. <laughs> um, I try to pretend like I'm not as left-leaning as I am, but I'm pretty pretty far to the left. Um, I just think that he doesn't know what he's doing at all, and the people that should be around him to support him, he didn't pick very wisely. So he's just, I don't think he cares either. You know, like if you're golfing that much, I don't think you give a shit. (laughs) Do you feel Um, like he's more of one of these types that just wants to be the center of attention and wants to, uh, wants to be like, uh, you know, almost like a comedian, comedian in his own way. Absolutely. I think that he did it just to prove that he could. Um, I don't think he ever had the intention of, you know, it, it, with the job at all. He just wanted, you know, he only thought to the part where he got elected. He didn't really think about after that. Um, yeah, I think it's huge. He loves attention. He he has that confidence that I'm jealous of. He hmm. can fail and do things so poorly and still have so much confidence in himself and really blindly. And I... I I think a lot of us are so hard on what we're doing, even when we're working really hard and doing things correctly and caring about other people. And then you see this guy who's got the most power in the world, just so confident in making the worst decisions ever. And you're like, why can't I be like him? Not that I want to be like him, but you know what I feel about myself. 
Are you a religious person at all? Do you have a belief in God or a higher power? You know, I'm not religious at all. I never really went to church. My family wasn't. But I do, and I've always kind of had a belief in, I guess, like energy and like how, like scientifically everything's made of the same stuff. And so we're all kind of connected and that kind of thing. Like I think I believe in the the universe and that power a little bit more than anything else. Um, God doesn't really speak to me at all, but... Um, I think that stuff's interesting. I don't know enough about it. Kind of a newer uh, looking into kind of thing. But yeah, I think my higher power is just, it would be like the connection of of energy. And to you, what would be the ultimate, the moment of, hey, I did what I wanted to do. Um, what would be the ultimate goal? Is it to maybe get into uh, movies or or be on a show like Saturday Night Live or, or just do the stand-up on a much grander scale? What Where where would you really love to see yourself? Uh, what, what type of goal would you really love to attain? I think if I'm, like, being really honest with myself, I want to um, make something on my own. I want to... Um, you know, I, I don't want to sit around and wait for someone to be like, okay, now it's your turn. I want to create something on my own and have it be uh, successful and popular enough where I can travel and do stand-up the way that I want to, you know, not as often, or I can fly and I can do little theaters or whatever, and I would like to move back to Seattle. I think all of those things together are really my ultimate goal. When you started being able to actually make a living with comedy, did you become a much happier person? Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I do, I do think there were parts of it that were happier, for sure. Um, no, you're, yeah, I think so. I think I deal with things a lot better now, and I wouldn't say much happier, but definitely happier. I think... No matter what, at the end of the day, you can go back to the fact that you're doing what you want to do. And you're, you know, if you're stressed, it's still because you're doing what you want to do. Um, maybe that's not, you know, paying you enough or whatever, but you can always fall back on that. There's not a whole lot of what ifs for me. Um, I mean, sometimes there is. I mean, like, well, what if I stay there? But, um, there's not there, you know, I'm not at a day job that I hate where I'm like, well, what if I did just quit and leave? Because I did. So, um, yeah, I would say I'm happier, but not. As soon as financially I'm, like, real stable, I think everything will be great. <laughs> and for all those young folk out there that might be listening and thinking, you know, I'd really like to be a stand-up comic or get into comedy. Do you have any advice for them? Uh, yeah, I think people that ask me about it, I say go, well, one, watch as much as you can. Go see it live. I think that's huge. I think a lot of people, including myself, hadn't really seen it live before I went to my first few open mics. And then go do it. That was the thing that I wished when I had started was that, you know, I'd been writing jokes for so long. Why didn't I do this earlier? Um, so go, you can Google it, find out where your open mics are in your area. Go watch a couple and then and then sign up. I think that you're never going to know until you try it. 
But it's what comes in the aftermath that you people have to think about. You can't be short-sighted. you got to look past it. What do we do once we isolate the problem and we take care of it, if that ever happens? If that ever happens. What do we do at that point? Who's going to become our leader? What's going to happen? Uh, chances are it's going to get worse because there's a lot of agendas at play and there's a lot of people and a lot of groups that want to take over. And a lot of what we're seeing going on in the world and potentially even this Mandela effect thing might be a byproduct of that because there there are wars going on. It might be between the reptilians and the Nordics. It might be between time travelers. It might be just good versus evil. Who knows? But there is a war going on, and we are all soldiers in this war, and we fight for either side, whether we know it, whether we acknowledge it or not. And what's really coming down the pipe is something to pay attention to, because if we fall for it, if we fall for this mass deception, if we fall for this trick... And we allow this new government, this world government, or whatever it's going to be, whatever it is, it might be an individual, who knows. If we allow if we allow them to pull the wool over our eyes and make us think that we're gaining freedom and make us think that the evil is being overcome, then we are truly being as foolish as a fool can possibly fool himself. If we allow that to happen. Oh, somebody's calling, somebody's calling. Oh my God, oh my God. Oh my god, why is it coming on my phone, too? What the hell? Hello? Hey, Daniel. Hey there, buddy. What's going on, my man? Not much. Just interviewing, hanging out, chilling, talking about the end of days. I was listening to that last uh, part of your rant, you know, not rant, but your observation there, and I'm like, I gotta call in. Okay, okay. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Oh, I love where you're going there, you know, that last part. Remind me where you were, Daniel, before I called in. Well, we kind of talked about this a little bit last week, but my whole point is that a lot of people out there, they think that we're in a war of some kind, and I agree. But a lot of these people think that the end is going to come quicker than it is. And they think there's going to be some kind of positive outcome and all the bad things and all the bad guys are going to go away and we're just going to live yeah. in peace and happiness forever. And I'm here to tell everybody that that's a load of crap. Mm-hmm. It's BS. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Yeah, it's a ritual that we play over and over and they have for thousands of years. The world, it's like a clock. You know how we all have a clock where the arms turn around on the dial in front of you? Yeah. Well, the rituals continue uh, year by year, day by day, throughout time, and they um, that's the solid, fixed universe that they, that they uh, play out these rituals in. I, I totally agree, and there's a good chance that this might have happened before in the ancient civilization called Atlantis. We know that they were experimenting with certain technologies and magics, and things got out of control. They were messing around with crystals, and somehow they ruptured something or another, and, and everything fell apart. Yeah, there's those legends that have grown from a mass of weird... Um, uh, uh, 
thoughts and ideas that have been recorded in book form over the years on Atlantis. The legend of Atlantis started with Plato. Atlantis. He was the first one to mention it. Isn't and there that a was song? Twenty five hundred years ago. Isn't there a song by Donovan about Atlantis? A Donovan? Yeah, he did do one. He did do one. I can't remember what the name was. It had something to do with Atlantis. Yeah, I love Donovan. I think Donovan. it was just called Atlantis. It probably was. I've heard it too. Not his best one, not his most memorable. I have Donovan's that I'm just like that's the baddest song of all time right there. But but not to uh not to swerve on you, Todd, you were saying something about Plato. Oh, oh Plato, yeah. He was the first one to mention Atlantis and he claimed to have gotten it from a, a story that was told long before and put the date back about 10,000 B.C. Uh, philosophers and people look back into that claim, you know, trace it back to about 10,000, an ancient civilization that was destroyed, advanced technology. Um, he was the first one to, to um, put it down and the idea spread from there. And there's lots of evidence that ancient civilizations existed and perished, so... Yeah, in fact, uh, I, I know some of the details of that story. Um, it was actually the Egyptians that told Plato about Atlantis, yeah. and, and, and they told Plato That's another right. thing. They said, you Greeks, you guys are children compared to us Egyptians, because our knowledge goes all the way back to the old world that came before Greece or Sumer or any of those civilizations, the Egyptians... They they at least had that knowledge for a while, and I don't know if it was the burning of the Library of Alexandria or what happened, but it seems that they lost it. It wasn't. It wasn't. They didn't tell Plato directly, Daniel. They told one of uh, um, a. Um, they told one of his guards that was guarding one of their most famous people in Greece, and I can't remember the name. But Plato recounted the story. And you know what's funny about um, Plato and and who was his uh, teacher? Was it Socrates? Socrates. You know they both believed yep. in Zeus. Yeah, because they lived in Greece. But they literally believed that Zeus was like a real guy. Yep, up on the mountain, Mount uh, Vesuvius. Or was it was Mount Olympus? Mount Olympus. It's funny, though, when you think about that, because obviously Plato and Socrates were like a couple of the smartest people that ever lived, period, yet they believed in yeah. Zeus. Well, they're, that that's what they were raised on. It's like if you and I are talking and you're, you're like a Catholic and I'm a Mormon, that they're talking at the times, and that was what the 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 society around them believed. That was their traditional uh, cultural beliefs, and they reported it. They reported it. Um, you know what? You know what affected um, Plato the most? What his teacher Socrates was executed because he supposedly corrupted the young. 
and they executed him in the public square. And that's what made Plato go, oh, shit, you know. What was Socrates saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. They, they made him drink poison, right? Mm-hmm. Well, isn't that a romantic way to die? Supposedly, he was corrupting the youth, and uh, he was having a, a lot of homosexual relationships with young men, and, and they didn't like that. Well, I don't know about <laughs> I didn't look deep into that, but I know it exists and in, in Greece and oh, it's true. The period. Oh yeah, I've seen like um, the, the movies. Like, um, remember that movie Spartacus or TV show Spart Spart? What was that killer TV show by on HBO Spartacus or? Oh yes, like that. Spartacus was the guy that. He was a gladiator, and him and a bunch of other yeah, gladiators was, escaped. That was further ahead in time. It was in Rome, but in Greece, Rome, there was guys and girls and lots of crazy shit going on. Everybody was gay <laughs> back cool. then. Everybody's gay. <laughs> well, Daniel, if they sent you out to war, you know, like in these battalions where you're out there for for like years fighting barbarians and you're surrounded by nothing but guys, really fucking well-built guys too. The only girls you get is when you capture a village back then. And so you're just fucking all these well-built guys. Um, <laughs> similar thing happens to missionaries. If you're sent out on a mission at like 17 or 18, your hormones are raging. There's nothing but a bunch of guys around. Uh, yeah, but I suppose. I didn't mean to get off topic, but <laughs> they've talked about that phenomenon where if you isolate a person, you know, there's no girl. There's that There's that one kind of chubby guy. He's kind of cute. <laughs> well, it's, it's, uh, yeah. it's the same for lesbians. I think a lot of the women were lesbians back then. Didn't they have an island called Lesbos? I've never heard of that. <laughs> yeah, it was like some island somewhere, and there were a bunch of like lesbian warriors or something like that. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> yeah, I might have my facts a little bit mixed up, but I know pretty much the whole ancient world was gay. I mix my facts up all the time, and yeah, there was lots of uh, of um, writings about. Um, in Greece, and uh, that there was lots of gay, gay activities. Yep. Yeah, why do, why do you think they call it Greek? <laughs> I, I don't know. Yep, On that's that. why. That's why. <laughs> why do you think they had all those statues with penises in their faces? Because they weren't ashamed of their bodies, and they recognized that, hey, we're, this is what we look like. Plus, they like that shit. They're like, yeah, let's make another statue of Zeus. Yeah, Zeus has a nice ass, yeah. Well, Daniel, they did worship the perfect uh, physical physique. <laughs> the best-looking people were like, there he is. You've got to love that. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but, but, Daniel, it was, it was ruthless back then. The people that were the most well-built and trained, and they were groomed, man. They were like, 
They were like the universe's razor knife. These warriors and these leaders and these people at that time, they wouldn't write stories about them, Daniel, like that if they weren't. Yeah, they were like, yeah, Hercules, he had a huge cock. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. Hercules. You guys think that he killed the lion? No, he didn't kill it, he fucked it, yeah. That's a TV show, though. Hercules? That's a Oh, no, the, the legend's old, but the TV show's kind of what we all base our ideas about Hercules. What was his name? Uh, Kevin Sorbo? Oh, my God. I can't believe you're bringing that up. I used to watch that show. I love that show. Xena, the warrior princess. I was like, screw Hercules. Xena's coming on. Xena, another lesbian. Oh, I, well... You're about to say, I love Very that great. shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're about show. to say it, Todd. I know. You're like, I love that shit. She's, well, she's traveling with her sidekick, a young, blonde, female companion, going into danger. That's a very attractive format for a TV show. And they have to set up that campsite and, and get, in the sleeping, <laughs> Every night. get in the sleeping bag together made out of animal skins. Mm. Ah, damn. But anyways, that's why that show was popular. Had that going for it. I don't know. I I, th- I just thought it was a good show. I thought it was pretty good. No, it, it was a fantastic show because it was directed by Sam Raimi and Robert Taffert, and they were the ones that did the Evil Dead. Oh, that's yeah. How they got famous. Yeah, that's right. That's how they got famous. Was they did the the Evil Dead. And that show's so classic, you know, because they got the Necronomicon and H.P. Lovecraft and they ripped them off and they put a first movie out that did the Necronomicon. It was classic. I used to love when, like, a bunch of dudes would pile on top of Hercules and he'd go, and he'd just, like, throw off 20 guys. Ah, on Ten dudes. I love that. That's so awesome. Yeah, and then sometimes... Sometimes Ares would come down out of Mount Olympus and they'd have to fight and they'd have like a huge battle where they're like punching each other like 50 feet. Dude, that show was so bad because it portrayed the way the Greeks viewed the world. Yeah, it was was well done. I mean, considering the budget that they had to deal with and what they turned it into and the fact that it actually spawned a spinoff, that's pretty damn good. Yeah, I, I didn't realize Hercules was cool until I got into Xena. Because she's, the show, she's so beautiful, and you're just like, wow, look at this show. Well, Xena, Xena uh, became even more popular because, <clears throat> cause like, everybody loved the whole, like, lesbo thing or something, because Xena was, like, twice as popular easily. Well, shit, she's six, five foot eleven or something, and, mm, did, have you seen her? <laughs> Oh, yeah. What was her name Did in real life? Did you see that show? Was Lu- it Lu- Lucy, Lucy Lawless? Lawless? Oh, we said at the same time. And guess what? She's the sister of Blackie Lawless, the lead singer of Wasp. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. And Wasp was one of the most famous heavy metal bands from the mid-80s. Let's, let's say and Lucy Lawless look- at the same time again. One, two, three. Lucy Lawless. Lucy, Lucy Lawless. Lawless. Oh, man, that's so awesome. Oh, that's good. I should get my tambourine. <laughs> I left it in the basement, though. But, Daniel, there's something else I want to talk about. I'm glad you took me off on a weird track about Lucy Wallace. Because she's so beautiful. 
Yeah. You know, she's still in the, the Evil Dead TV show. She's a little older now, but beautiful woman there, man. Oh, yeah, I watched, like, the first three episodes. I need to catch up on that. Oh, I love that show. It's so cool. Bruce Campbell. Who doesn't love Bruce Campbell? Funny guy. Funny. He's got the face. Um, they knew how to put it together, and they were putting it together, Daniel, by that point. I love that part. That I think it's in the second movie where his hand is, like, going crazy, and he's like, give me back my hand. Oh, that's classic. He cuts off his hand, and then... Yeah. Yeah, and then the hand's chasing him throughout the rest of the movie. Yeah, that and, was... Um, oh, my God, I love that. And it was just old, like... That was, like, the mid-'80s when they come out with that. And I went to the movies and seen it at the theater, and you're like, whoa, nobody's ever seen anything like that. <laughs> and it had the Necronomicon in it, so you're like, holy shit, now they're trying to bring Lovecraft into the movies. One of the reasons they don't bring, they haven't brought, you don't see Lovecraft movies everywhere is because the monsters are so freaking weird and out of this world that the C, they didn't have the CGI to create what Lovecraft described. And that's, that's what I was telling you before. They couldn't quite create those weird aliens Lovecraft described back then. You know, so Todd, I, I think they could. I think they could, but I think Lovecraft was just too over people's heads. I mean, you had Clash of the Titans with big, scary claymation guys. I mean, if they really wanted to, they probably would have done it. Well, Clash of the Titans is like um, old school mythology that we're all taught in school. It's almost boring. It's like history lessons put to um, put to, to movies. Because... Um, uh, all based upon a Greek mythology, incredible. Have you ever read, like, uh, 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 Ulysses? Oh, uh, the Odyssey? Yeah, the Odyssey. Or the Iliad, I mean. The Iliad by Ulysses. Or Ulysses was the character, the hero, but by Homer. Yeah, the, the Iliad and the oh, yeah. Odyssey. I think Ulysses was in both of them. in the Odyssey by Homer. Yeah, he was in both. He was uh, like, uh, a, yeah. in the first part, the war, the Iliad, he was a hero. And then the Odyssey is the story of the journey back from the Trojan War, which is the first story, the Iliad. So you have the Trojan War, and then a bunch of crazy shit happens. And then they're like, oh, we kicked their asses using the Trojan horse. Time to go home. So Ulysses, no, wait, no, 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 hold on. I'm getting them mixed oh, up. Oh, you again. got it. You got it right. You got it right. Because I'm getting mixed up. I didn't even want to talk about this, but and, and people that actually right know what they're what 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 this is all about are probably just like, oh my god, they're both wrong. <laughs> We're out of our minds. Yeah, no, because this isn't even what I wanted to tell you about today. I had something exciting to tell you. Well, tell me. Well, let's just go into that. Yeah, screw yeah, home. yeah. Fuck, um, fuck Greece. Fuck Homer. Exactly. <laughs> Who are these people? We're in America. No. <laughs> Homer Simpson? Oh. oh. Our uh, our uh, governmental system is based on Greece's governmental system in a lot of ways, Daniel. They spend a lot of time thinking about uh, the proper form of government. Yeah, that's... 
That's because those guys, they, they were smart and educated. They were members of secret societies, and they were very educated in history. They were very educated in politics. And they went back to the history books, and they took the best system that ever existed in history, and they brought it to us, and that's how the United States of America was created. USA, USA, USA. Go ahead. Our, con- our constitutional founders were well studied in... in uh politics and the governmental structures that have existed since Greece. That's what they based our system on when they And guess what they, they called it, Todd? Guess what they called it? The New World. Sound familiar? Well, the, the New World Order? Place. Yeah. Coincidence? Yeah. Coincidence? I love how you, you are using that now. Um, I wanted to tell you something cool. Okay. Had 20 bucks today. Went over to the thrift store, you know, where I, I hunt for books. Uh-huh. Found about 20 books. Somebody probably died. Unloaded their own, their old paranormal collection. Found about 20 books. A classic. I found Zachariah Sitchin, The Trope Planet. Oh. Published 1977. Original copy from that period in mint condition, Daniel, for a dollar. I got so into those Uh, books years ago, I read every single one of them. Mm hmm. They were so good, but and I lost mine, so I, I refound that that one. That book had like a picture every three pages of ancient Sumerian diagrams and um, pictures of their uh, motifs that existed inside their temples, showing that Planet X is coming. Telling you about Anunnaki and uh, Nibiru. Well, to kind of circle back to what we were talking about, uh, one of the Sitchin books, I think it might be the second one, I, I can't really remember, but they talk about Alexander the Great quite a bit and how he would claim that his father was actually uh, the god of Egypt, Ra. Yeah, I don't remember if I caught. I remember that uh, catching that part um, in his books because my, my I read those books way back when, so my recollection is a little fuzzy. I still have a couple over the years that I've read about three times, like Gold of the Gods. It was amazing. Yeah, but basically the reason why he uses Alexander the Great in the book is he's showing everybody what it was like back then, that the leaders, the kings, they would always claim to be descended from the gods. It, it was just how it was done back then. That's why they believed that they could rule over us. In Sumer, uh, there was a phrase, it, it, was, it went, uh, kingship was lowered onto Sumer, meaning the kingship came from a pie, it came from the heavens. And, and that was the belief back then, that, that uh, the, the royalty, they were actually uh, connected to some kind of godhood. You're talking about the sun god king system. Yeah, yeah. And that didn't dis- that didn't disappear then. That 
that that has existed and still exists, and you can see it right up until the uh, 20th century, where when we conquered China, when the West conquered China, they had a sun god king system. The emperor was chosen by the gods, the royal bloodline, um, a lineage that that has the blood of the gods. Even the you know the British aristocracy has that, and um, uh, it's a claim, but it's backed up by a lot of evidence that that's why they claim they're better than us because they got the god blood. That's why they didn't want to mix races. They would they would inbreed. Yeah, that's they why. They wouldn't even go out. That's why a lot of people believe the whole reptilian thing, because they say that these blue-blooded people, these aristocrats, royalty, elite, super rich people, uh, since they're descended from those original gods in ancient times, it, it must mean that there's reptilian aliens out there. It, it's kind of, I don't know if that logic really works, because on one hand, yeah, you do have Sitchin, and you do have... Uh, Hey Todd, what's the other guy? Chariot of the Gods. What's his name? It's just oh, Eric Von Daniken. Uh, and that's yeah. what I was going to tell you was I found some dead guy's collection, and it had an Eric Von Daniken book in it too, Daniel, called Gods from Outer Space. Mint condition with the bat hardcover back on it, nineteen seventy-seven. Oh my God, Eric Von Daniken. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, and dude. The, the pages were like, you can smell the must from 1977. Somebody died, and I picked up on a, you know part of their old occult collection. Imagine so if you were about Bandanikin. Imagine if you were like this big cokehead, and every time you snort some of your coke, you do it like off of a Sitchin book or a Bandanikin book. <laughs> There's probably a lot of. Coke snorted off of Von Daniken's book. <laughs> he was he was the biggest uh, UFO book in the seventies. The biggest UFO book. They made a movie called Chariots of the Gods. I went and seen it at the at the movie theaters, Daniel, in like nineteen seventy five, uh, about seventeen times. Oh, okay. They made a two hour movie called Chariots of the Gods by. Eric Von Daniken, and it was like, uh, uh, you know that movie, In Search Of, the TV show with Letter Nimoy's? Well, that was a, yeah, yeah, definitely, but that was a very uh, controversial movie at the time because it went against the teachings of the church. Well, it was the first introduction of the idea that the aliens, they, they were here long ago, they built this stuff. That's why I don't buy. I, you know, I'm so suspicious, Daniel, even of Danikin, Danikin especially. I'm suspicious of all of them. I'm suspicious of Sitchin. Highly. I found some, Daniel. I found a book at the thrift store uh-huh. that I wanted to tell. I wanted to tell you about this. It's published 1989. They tried to hide the copyright date. That's the first thing I look at when I open a book is the copyright date, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, it's called The History of the United States, a Chronicle of America. It's incredible. 
you'd have to see this scene to believe it. It's 1989. They have 10,000 stories. You can flip every page, and it's every year since it starts, Daniel. This is how big this book is. It's 955 pages long, and it starts in the year... It starts in the year 1500 to explain how the United States is born. Uh-huh. And you flip through this book. It's bigger than a phone book. When I turn to 1985, Daniel, it's filled with 20 news stories ripped from the newspapers of 1985. And let me tell you what I've seen right here. Largest atom lab opens in Illinois. October 13th, 1985. The Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory is the home of the world's largest atom smasher, a huge accelerator that measures four miles in diameter. Switched on for the first time today, the enormous device has produced energy levels three times higher than any previously achieved The accelerator is expected to help the United States regain the lead in high-energy physics that was lost to a European consortium in the 70s as a research tool. The device is unequaled. 1989. That kind of sounds like CERN. That's CERN. Same thing, but they didn't call it. Did you hear Accelerator? It's only four miles wide. CERN's like 32 miles wide. They kept building it. Accelerators are all over. This must be something really important, Daniel, to them. Accelerators, atomic atom smashers. You know, Todd, I I have to admit, I'm not like... I'm a pretty smart dude, but I'm not like a physicist or anything like that. So I can't really say I understand what the hell... CERN is really or what they're trying to do I know they're trying to like smash particles together because somehow it will prove something or help science in some way but do you see how history is repeating itself and we're talking about shit that they were talking about in 1989 yeah yeah I just wish I could figure out what the heck they're actually doing Uh, it seems to be the main theory is that they're trying to open up a portal. Yeah, portals, portals, portals. You keep hearing, you don't hear it. I mean, you hear it, you don't hear it. TV shows, movies, accelerators, they're smashing atoms. Um, it's not a coincidence. Do you know who the number one publishing company is in, in the United States that publishes more books than all the companies? Provide combined. I wouldn't. It's know. the CIA. Oh really? Wow. Are you kidding? Oh, yeah. Is that true? Oh yeah. Hmm. So, so you, I see where you're getting that, Todd. You're, you're taking the <laughs> long route, but um, you, basically, what you're saying is that you think that there might be a grand plot here to put forth this idea of ancient aliens for some reason that benefits some grander plot. I just think we're buried in the same old crap, Daniel, that they've used for thousands of years to control us. 
And there probably is this advanced technology, but if there is or isn't, we're not getting anywhere near it. And the people that run it, they're not going to share it right now because would you share it if you was these assholes? Would I share a portal? Probably not. I would probably... No, the, no, the advanced technology. No, well, yeah, I mean, the portals would be part of that, but no, I, would, I wouldn't share, like, if I had invisibility technology or anti-gravity, I would probably try to patent it and make some money off of it. I, that's what I would do. <laughs> yeah, and that's not a bad thing. No. That you want thing. to uh, <clears throat> keep your um, technology that you've developed. Yeah, and, you know, there there's so much stuff here, and it's easy to turn a blind eye. It's easy to dismiss it. But, um, for, for example, Michael Aquino, that's his name, right? Michael Aquino. Yeah, he said that. Yeah. Yeah, he said that, uh, and, and for those of you that don't know, Aquino was part of the, some people think that he worked for the NSA. That's not true. That's a myth. He never worked for the NSA at any point. He actually worked for something far worse called PSYOPs. PSYOPs. No, he was, he, he was director of the National no, no, agency. no, he wasn't. That's a myth, Todd. That's not it, true. I, and it, part of that's my fault because I've been saying that, but that's not true. Are you kidding me? Yeah. So it's it, being put out there, but it's not true. But it's not true, but it's close to the truth because he was a part of PSYOPs. Which is the same thing. It doesn't really matter. It, it's, no, but please. Yeah, if anything... On, I didn't mean to interrupt you. If anything, PSYOPs is it's two, two steps more black budget than anything the NSA is doing because what PSYOPs does is they actually do what the name stands for, which is psychological operations, meaning they go out and they fuck with people's minds. Yeah, yeah. Well, his book's called Mind Wars. Yeah, and I've read, like, the first chapter of that book and it scared the shit out of me and I won't, won't go any further I see well if you don't go any further then you won't know what he's proposing and he came on your show and he did a pretty good job explaining why he does what he does and, and you know Todd that's the thing he seems like just the nicest friendliest old man doesn't he yeah I, I was highly entertained and um surprised by his person personability yeah it's so crazy because he came on here and he said he stated that yes the government was working on a stargate program and yes stargate was a portal using the magnetosphere of the earth yep that's fucking and crazy stargate, man that they were they were moving from planet to planet or who knows what they that that Stargate thing left it open that they had some kind of thing that they, they, he didn't explain whether they were transporting aliens here and were going over there or if it was a portal or he, he didn't get into that. Yeah, I mean that might have that stuff might have been even above his head, but he was a guy that was embedded deep enough within the secret parts of our government that he caught wind of it, that he was aware of it. Oh, no, he was not only aware of it, fully versed in what it was and what they were doing. He laughed at you. He didn't explain it. Don't you remember that? Yeah, I remember getting a little bit of that sort of attitude. I do remember that. 
Yeah, there was this sense that <laughs> I've seen shit, kids. Yeah, yeah. I definitely oh, yeah. caught that vibe, absolutely. And you know, when somebody acts that way, um, I do have to question whether or not that person is, uh, you know, skilled in, in deception and in keeping back facts. And, yeah. Yeah. I've sensed that from you all along. You mentioned that a long time ago. I won't have a Michael Aquino on my show. I almost remember you saying that. Yeah, I, I just... I, and I wouldn't stand against you, Daniel, because if somebody's sitting there stabbing you in the side, going, <laughs> yeah, I'm well-versed in this, no one should stand there and get stabbed in the side by somebody. You have to have self-defense, Daniel, is what our 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 whole system is based upon. Um, the right to live, you know. Somebody can't come up to you and just start killing you. Uh, yeah, totally. I, I think I get your point, Todd. But uh, the, the thing about Michael Aquino... Um, I don't have anything against him personally, and I, I hate to think that I came on here and was negative towards him. But I'm going to stick to I, that. I'm going to stick to that. I don't want to have him on the show again. Um, when he was on the show, it was a past version of the show, and I did not actually invite him. But back then, I probably would have. You know, I, I toyed around with the idea, and um, I don't really know if he's a good guy or a bad guy, but. After reading a little bit of his book, I I have found that me Daniel I am com I'm completely opposite in my beliefs and my thoughts. I would never think that it was okay to spy on a population or manipulate them or use the mind control and propaganda as his book is is alluding to and as his book is making seem ethical and okay. It's not okay. It will never be okay. This show is against that type of shit. I hear you. And he made, let me tell you something about that show. Let me tell you the most potent part about that show. He made the argument that we opted take you out physically or take you out mentally. Mm. And then you're still here, but you're gone. You're, you're gone. But now you're still here. And I'm just paraphrasing. I'm not even paraphrasing. I'm just saying kind of what he was saying. That's how they justified it. Take them out physically or take them out mentally. Isn't that kind of distilled down to what that mind wars is about, Daniel? A more ethical way to take down people? Yes, yes, that's a very good... Um very good way of putting it because it, it does say in the part that I read that if you use the psychological tactics that you can avoid spending the money, that you could avoid all the death. And I got to admit, that is a point. That is a point. But still, still, I have to think of human freedom and human, human liberation and the right to choose our own path. And the idea that some much richer, more powerful country that has this technology and has this capability can go in and just tell another country what their destiny is, where they're headed. I can't agree with that. I mean, this is a philosophical argument 
But this is end of days radio. We're against that sort of stuff. We're against mind control. We want to be free. That's our goal. It's freedom. It's not power. It's freedom because that's what it, that's where happiness is really at. It's in freedom, not power. That's why I'm going to back you up here, my man. Now listen, it's about freedom. That's all it's about. Left, right, up, down. Freedom is the thing. And if we don't hold on to what freedoms that we were were granted by people that fought for it earlier than us before we got here, we're going to lose them. So even if you do it in your own mind, break out, start to question, we're surrounded by propaganda. Uh, nowadays, dang, I'm scared because they're going to work in the AI. You know, the AI is coming. It's already here. And that, that whole gonna... thing, Todd, not to cut you off, but that whole thing is going to be a major part of whatever is going down. I don't pretend like I have the answers, but I could tell you that much. Yeah, they're not... You're not going to be fighting against people if there is a real resistance in the end to a total evil authoritarian takeover. You're going to be fighting against machines. And if you've ever fought, a, if you've ever tried on a computer game to beat the fucking machine, <laughs> put it on the highest level, see if you can beat it. That's what it'll be like, Daniel. Yeah. Wow. It's going to be like the movie Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. <laughs> We're going to need to build a Godzilla called Cthulhu. That's what's going on. Godzilla got his right. butt whooped in that movie. Do you know why Cthulhu's coming? Because the military-industrial complex, the only thing that can beat it now is Cthulhu. Would you would you like to elaborate on that, Todd? That's interesting. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? There's a movie. All the world's industrial defense forces set up, but Cthulhu's coming from another universe, from well be way beyond. No, he's coming up from the center of the earth because he's been sleeping there. If you've ever looked into Cthulhu, if Cthulhu rises, Daniel, he makes Godzilla look small. He's like 10,000 times Godzilla. I'm still betting on Godzilla, but go ahead. But he's like many tentacles, 1,000 eyeballs coming off of every tentacle. And and we're kind of like flies to Cthulhu in those Lovecraft stories. You know, he doesn't even see us. He's just moving on, stomping on continents. His followers have awakened him, brought him back from the depths. That's Cthulhu. Um, th- this this whole military thing, military-industrial complex thing. Remember last week when Daniel was like, oh, did you see that story about the FBI and the secret society in there? That's that's mainstream now. How horrible is that, Daniel? Well, the thing about Cthulhu, I do think that there's something there because 
if you do look into the most ancient of texts, that they do talk about there being beings on this planet before uh, the ancient aliens came, before, uh, you know, whatever these guys that Von Daniken or, or Sitchin were talking about, uh, apparently there was something already on this planet before they even got here, and they fought with it. Well, that's what Lovecraft wrote all his stories around. That, that millions and millions of years ago, there were like races that fought over the world. And the elder race won, and it locked up these evil, ancient alien races in uh, barriers that are where they're trapped beyond time and space. So they still live millions of years but they're trapped now wait hold on a second todd hold on a second i'm going to cut you off but for a very good reason um isn't there a part in the bible or one of the uh christian holy books where it says that uh the greatest most powerful demons were chained in the deep and they're going to be released in the end of days well I mean, that can't it, just be a coincidence. Says, it's so similar to what you just said. It's so similar. No, it says that the, 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 the seals will be opened. That there's seven seals. Because the book of Revelations, the apocalyptic scriptures are wrapped up around ancient uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish, Jewish. I don't know if you'd call it Jewish as much as just ancient people of that time where they, they start out with their seven seals and as they open them up, one of them they open it up and the demons are released. Yep. Check, check this out, Todd. I, I did a little Googling and it says, uh, uh, this is talking about the bottomless pit. It says, it the also refers pit. to the place where demons can be confined when they are cast out of people. In Luke eight thirty one, the demons beg Jesus not to send them to the abyss. Interesting, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The demons. Um, the abyss. The abyss. Reference to the abyss. It just seems like we're talking about the same thing. Even though you're talking about it in a completely non-Christian angle, and I'm looking at this sort of Christian stuff, it, it seems like we're talking about the same thing. Oh, yeah. There's an abyss. Regardless of your Christian or Mormon or Buddhist, the dark night of the soul, you kind of touched on that. But, I mean, it's just, that's a, that's a, if you just look at the text as it is, Daniel, that's an archetypal way of explaining that there's, there's just evil in the, in the outer reaches that can't wait to get in. Oh, that that makes sense. I mean, uh, you, since I was a child, since I was born, um, yes, I have had these experiences with the UFOs and things like that, but also I, I have just felt uh, evil all around me uh, from others and even within myself. It, it, it's an undeniable that uh, whatever you believe, nobody can truly believe that evil does not exist because it's part of what we are and who we are. Well, I'll just say this. Um, we, um, I told you last time I talked to you that, that there's a polarity principle to the universe. There's a 
positive negative charge. We have a, a, let's not call it a dark side, let's call it a shadow side. Um, Our unconscious, Daniel, is almost bigger than we can consciously understand. Things that are happening to us while we're unconscious can't even be calculated and won't be discussed in in society except in like research they do about what goes on when we sleep, what can go on in the mind. I I think that there's something to be said about that, Todd, because they say that magic works on the unconscious and the subconscious and even if we're not aware of it we could be walking down the street and we see some kind of symbol or we see it doesn't even have to be a symbol it could be a lady in a red dress but something that triggers something within us and once you trigger something within it's going to affect the outside world it's going to create a chain reaction so there's definitely something to be said about the unconscious and the subconscious and and perhaps that is the gateway to these uh, demons of the abyss so to speak these gods of old these ancient whatever which call it now put your finger right on it walk down the street go down into your city look around you all the biggest buildings all the corporations have the symbols of the secret societies that your unconscious responds to the pyramids the mermaids the squares, the compasses, they're all around you. You're not a part of them, so wake up and see that they're everywhere, Daniel. And and then realize that everything that's playing out, it's already been played out. And they play it over and over and over again. Yeah, no doubt. There's definitely a world that goes unseen by most. And then once you become educated, once you gain the eyes to see, the ears to hear, once you gain that wisdom, then you can recognize it. And if you are a student of things like marketing, commercials, you probably are going to be able to see uh, you're probably going to be able to understand the world of magic and the occult uh, much better. Oh, yeah. And um, what I wanted to talk about before I left you is we just had a super blue moon blood red total eclipse last night. Yeah, Todd, you That's sent me pretty incredible. You sent me a news story about this. Should I go ahead and read it now? Please do. Okay, this comes from drudgenow.com. It says Eclipse 2018, today's blood moon to trigger satanic sex rituals of human and animal sacrifice. Article states, the end of January and beginning of February is already an important time in the calendar for Satanists, but tonight's once-in-a-lifetime conjunction of a blue moon, blue moon and a lunar eclipse, has sent some devil worshippers into a frenzy. It says, across Britain and the world, Satanic covens are expected to convene workings where Lucifer will be summoned. Some online forums are even suggesting human 
and animal sacrifice will play a part. And then it says, during a recent full moon satanic ritual, one of the famous Dartmoor ponies was found in a circle of fire with its tongue, eyes, and genitals mutilated and belly slit from end to end. The mutilations had been conducted while the pony was alive. Christ on a cross. What the hell, Todd? Daniel, that story occurred today. And there was a story a month ago. I don't know if I sent it to you or just put it in my file. Um, uh, 40 horses were slain in a satanic ritual in Florida a month ago. And they had evidence that they were a ritual. 40 horses, Daniel, were found satanically, uh, you know, killed. And, Florida. and the th- the funny thing about this, Todd, is that uh, many people, perhaps Mr. Aquino would say this, but they're, they're, that's all satanic panic. It's not real. It's the satanic panic of the 80s. Uh, that was all fake. There never was any rituals or anything like that. That's what they would say. Have you seen Michael Aquino's wife? <laughs> um, no. She's one of the most beautiful women in the world. He's not going to be at the satanic horse-killing ritual, even if he is connected. He has this wife, Daniel, that you're like, holy shit. Go look his wife up online. Yeah, I just uh, and then, I just pulled up a picture of her. Yeah, she's pretty. Uh, pretty. Fuck, look at him. <laughs> he looks like uh, Spock's grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> even better looking. Ah, he's very more evil. <laughs> yeah, I've seen some of these other pictures. I'm just teasing about the evil. No, no, no. It's I. No, I, I agree with you, Todd. I mean, um, I I don't personally think that people that are um, satanic or um, you know even Luciferian or anything like that are necessarily evil. Of course not. Um, but you do have yeah, to, at the I same know. time, recognize the fact that um, that particular belief system does have links to um, uh, more darker tendencies. You, you can't deny that. I mean, obviously, um, if you are a Satanist, <coughs> for example, um, it, it might just mean that you worship nature or you, um, you, you know, you believe this or that. But then you always seem to find that. Uh, these people are into rituals and stuff like that, and, and it makes you ask, okay, if they're just really atheists deep down, then why are they so involved in, in magical ritual? It doesn't really make sense. I'll explain it to you. They're hardcore. They went beyond what... You know the military-industrial complex, Daniel? Yeah. It's not just money and bombs and guns. It's people that have trained their minds mentally in magic, military magic, psychological operations. Do you think your mind can connect that now into something like that you're proud of? Well, I kind of see what you're getting at. You're talking about um, how... The core belief in Satanism, it is of materialism and service to self, which is exactly the not same. Not even, not even, not even, because Satanism 
if you, I mean, which version of Satanism are you going off? Uh, yeah, Anton that's the thing. LeVay, that, that's the thing. Anton LaVey or Michael Aquino? Well, Michael Aquino changed the name of his shit. He became the Temple of Set. Michael Aquino started as the Temple of Set, and yeah, he's not connected to Anton LaVey in any other way than they're both in San Francisco. Daniel Hotbed is Satanism. But their philosophies are almost entirely different. Where uh, Anton LaVey was more like a circus guy. He's like, let's get some beautiful women in here. I'll dress up as the devil. Oh, yeah. Where Aquino is like, no, they have rituals. And we're going to take our stuff back to Babylon and Egypt. Hmm. So the Temple of Set's more... Babylonian, Sumerian, where Anton LaVey was a circus. He started in the circus before he formed the Church of Satan. I know that those two guys do not like each other, or at least Aquino, really. I mean, even as an old man, when we were interviewing him, when the topic of LaVey, LaVey came up, you could tell that he's, he's very angry towards him. Oh, LeVay. Uh, Aquino to LeVay. Yeah, yeah, he hates him. Well, no, he don't hate him. He's like, I'm scientific, and you're an entertainer. <laughs> That's what it was, Daniel. He thinks higher of himself because he's military, where LeVay is a circus performer. He's like Hollywood. LeVay's in Hollywood, Daniel. His girlfriend is the hottest actress in Hollywood, LeVay, back in the day. <laughs> LeVay um, back in the day. I like how you did that, Tom. Well, that, that was very... Well, it rhymes. It rhymes. Go look into Hollywood and... Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I see what you're saying, Todd. It, it's very interesting. You're full of... You're, you just, you're a bottomless pit of this stuff, aren't you? Well, I looked at it for so long, Dan, and I told you I was in there so uh, so long ago. That's why I see it all the time, is because I've seen it long ago. Once you see it, then you can figure out where they are, and you can see them. You're like, there they are. Well, you know why I like there this? They are again. <laughs> you know why I like this show, Todd? Because I'm smart. And you're smart, and when smart people come together, they become gods. Oh, I love that part, too. Yeah, everybody get to be a god. Yeah, please. Uh, no, it's like this. Please see the godhood in yourself. You are a god, as Daniel always tries to tell you. Well, not everybody, Todd, because some people out there, they don't have it. They don't have the god spark. They're just flesh robots. They lack a spirit or a soul. They're just flesh and they're like animals, but not even like animals because even animals have souls. They're just like robots. No. Well, that, yep, yep, robots. Yep, you're right. But let me tell you something, Daniel. You know what my wife wanted for Christmas? What's that, Todd? For me, because we don't have much money. I told you how I work and we struggle. Second wife here now. So beautiful. But she wanted a cross. 
and not just any cross, a cross with the figure of Christ hanging off it. And I says, yeah, for sure, babe, why do you want that? She says, I don't know, but that's my faith, that's my religion. I just want to have that classic symbol around me right now. And I'm like, for sure, let's find you the nicest one we can buy, afford or whatever, and we'll get it for you. We found it, Daniel. It's got that classic Jesus hanging off it. Little tiny ones, Daniel. It's silver. Um, only reason I bring that up, I guess, is because she felt like she needed something, some protection. Go back to her old whatever it is that she leans on. Daniel, people were like, that's how society is. Well, they've learned. The, the thing is, Todd, um, you know, while, while I, I agree that for the most part, Christianity is bullshit, I'll say that. There, there is another level to it. If you interpret it in a certain way, um, there, there's a universal truth. Like, Christ means like a, a crest, like a crystal. And we all have a crystal in our heads. It's the pineal gland. And when we awaken that Christ consciousness, we're actually just awakening our own third eye, which is our pineal gland. And, and you could say that the cross is almost like, um, you know, it's reference to the center of your forehead. And that's what it's all about. I mean, uh, if you want to believe Jesus is this guy that rides a Pegasus and is coming in the end of days to save us all, you can believe that. I would prefer to believe that Jesus represents a higher state of consciousness and, and a state of godliness or perfection that we all are trying to achieve at some point in our existence. The book of Revelation, Daniel, says that Christ went out as a lamb. He bowed down. He got sacrificed for all of our sins the first time. But when he comes back the next time, he has a flaming sword coming out of his mouth. Oh, damn. Oh, yeah. Go read the book of Revelations, and it describes how he comes in, and he's cutting fucking... <laughs> as he comes through. Well, I, I can interpret that, Todd. That, that means that he's coming back with the word. Yeah, the flaming sword, the word. That's what they said. And... um that's the New Testament. Um, <clears throat> uh, Christ. Let me tell you about Christ. Um, there are authors that wrote books in the uh, like late 90s. Have you ever heard of Holy Blood and Holy Grail? Yeah, that's a famous <laughs> book. That was like one of the first sort of... Yeah. Yeah. 1989, maybe, maybe earlier. But that was three authors that got together and researched, and somebody was feeding some shit on the true origins and what they were hiding about Christianity. What are they hiding? Christ might have survived the cross. Christ might have had a child. Mary Magdalene and him may have made it to France, lived out the rest of their lives, and their bloodline is still alive. 
and their bloodline is the king of Israel, is an Israeli, and the house of David, the Christian bloodline was hidden so that they could hide it from the people that run the world. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's very possible that that's true. I had a guest on here um, very early on. I've had a couple guests on here that went into the alternate stories of Jesus, and I, I think that what most of us probably think isn't really accurate, but if you pay close attention and read between the lines. You can see the truth in there because I was watching a movie. Check this out, Todd. Just let me get a word in edgewise for a second. Um, I was totally. watching a movie over Christmas. It wasn't me. A family member had uh, the greatest story ever told. I think that might be the name of it, or it might have been Jesus of Nazareth, one or the other. It was on the TV, and and I was you know I was watching it because I was pretty much being forced to. It was just on, and it was in the room. You know, I'd never watch that. But, Got it. But, you know, I'm just going with the flow. Whatever. To each their own. I'm not going to be too negative about it. So I'm just sitting there enjoying the holiday, and I'm noticing things. Like, they, they portray Jesus, his family, like they're so poor. They're poor. They, they have nothing, and, and they're just, you know, barely making it. But I remember what some of my guests have said, like Ralph Ellis, uh, that that Jesus, he actually was from what you were talking about just now, Todd. That's why I'm saying this. From yeah. that line, that kingly line of David and Solomon, and he was actually the the reason why they say he was the king of kings is because he was really the king of Israel. He was the king of that country, or the true king. Uh, like, not just spiritually, but actually like legally in a way because he was from that line so he should have been he should have taken over the whole thing really or maybe he did or maybe he was already in that position like maybe he wasn't this poor person or a carpenter maybe he was he was a king like like we've heard in some of this alternate history stuff yeah yeah um Henry Badgett Michael Lay and one other author dug deeper into it than you you could even imagine. You're not going to go read the fucking book, which is cool. But in 1989, I ate that up, and it was like, holy shit. There is a secret society that has existed since that period. It's over in Italy now, uh, Daniel. It's called the Priory of Sion. Not Zion. It's spelled S-I-O-N. And they are a Masonic fraternity called the P2 Lodge that's the most dangerous mafia-connected fraternity of Masons in the world. And they all tie into the Jesus House of David the protecting of the, you know how they have that cheesy movie, Daniel, that, yeah, that, yeah. Um, one with Tom Hanks. Yeah. That horribly cheesy movie. Todd, we're, Todd, we are really 
delving deep into a very big topic that's probably going to just open up a huge can of worms. And I, I think we're really getting somewhere, but I'm looking at the clock. I realize I've had you on for an hour and five oh, yeah, minutes. Yeah. And I'm so I'm so damn stoned. I don't even know what's going on or how long you've been on. So I probably should uh, <laughs> I should cut it short there and and uh, talk to you next week. <laughs> totally, Daniel. All right, my man. I love you. Just start calling. All right, buddy. Thank you for thank you for right. joining me. Peace, brother. Later. All right. That was Todd. My God. That was Todd. <laughs> I just looked at the clock and I realized, oh my God, I've been sitting here chatting with Todd for like over an hour. I thought it was like 20 minutes. Don't do pot, people. Don't do pot. Uh, actually, do it. Do it, Jimmy. Do it. Okay, so... Oh boy, there's so much to talk about. I don't even know what to get into. I should probably read some fan letters. Oh, Lordy. You know, I wasn't going to do a mind-blowing moment of the day, but now I'm thinking that the mind-blowing moment of the day, this episode, probably would have had to have been most of the last half hour of that conversation. I mean, we went really deep. We went into the deep. And... Some of you aren't going to like the show tonight, and some of you are going to love it. And the reason why the show is the way it is right now is because I'm putting you guys first from now on. This show is all about fan service. And most of the hardcore fans, the people I really hear from a lot, they just eat this stuff up. They love listening to long conversations with Todd. They love when we get into the deep and yeah maybe the casual listener doesn't want to listen to three or four hours of two dudes talking to each other but i know the real fans of this show just eat it up and you can never get enough and i hear from you guys all the time you guys get so mad when you don't hear from me for a while and 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 you just want more end of days radio so I, i want to give you as much as i can really that's what i want to do i just want to give you what you want that's my sole satisfaction in life. <laughs> so I'm doing this show as a show that I think that you guys would like. The hardcore end of days radio fans out there, a lot of guy, a lot of you guys have been with us since the beginning. A lot of you guys started listening to this show recently. It would ever be the case. Uh, that's fine. I am just glad that you guys are listening, and I hope you know that uh, this show it's changed a lot. It's it's changed a lot, obviously. It's always transforming, hopefully improving. But more and more, I realize that the key to doing this and the most important thing is to put the fans first, put the listeners first, whatever term you prefer. And I want to give you guys something that's really going to fill those empty spots in your day. Not just a quick one-hour interview with a guest on that's, really there just to get a lot of YouTube views or whatever. Fuck YouTube views. Fuck views, fuck listens, fuck numbers. Numbers don't exist. That's what they'll tell you. Numbers don't really exist. I don't care about numbers or anything like that. 
I'm not going by that stuff anymore. I never want to go by that stuff. And to me, that's what was really holding the show back, was going for the big guests to bring in tons and tons of views, or going for a format that appeals to the casual listener who stumbles upon the show on social media. Fuck that. From now on, I'm doing this show that I know that you hardcore fans out there want to hear. That is how this show is changing. That is how this show is evolving. And I think it's getting better. And I always hear from people out there that this show is getting better. They say you're getting better, Daniel, but I tell them that, no, the show is getting better. It is evolving. The format is continuing to improve. And sometimes the best thing you can do is loosen things up and not have so much of a format. And sometimes you need more of a format. It's no... There's no right answer there. It's an art form. Some people podcast, and they are people from reality shows, and they have a fan base, and people just want to hear them. They just want to hear those people be themselves and talk. Uh, This show's not really like that either. I'm not a famous person. I'm trying to put on a show here that people want to listen to that's addicting, that'll help them fill the day, and... That At the same time, it doesn't mean that I'm trying to make it like a Howard Stern show or something like that and have whack packers and characters and stuff like that. No, that's not it either. This show is its own thing, and it's involved into its own thing. It's its own animal. It's its own entity. I don't want to be like anybody else out there. I don't want to be like any podcast out there. I listen to so many podcasts. I'm very into podcasts. I'm very into podcasting. And there's some of them out there that I'm addicted to. And I try to look at what those guys are doing that works. It doesn't mean I'm going to copy what they're doing. It just means I'm going to think about it. One of my favorite podcasts to listen to is the Vince Russo podcast. Vince Russo was the original writer for the WWF back in the Attitude Era. For you kids out there, the WWF is the WWE now. They changed the name. Because the World Wildlife Federation sued them. (laughs) But Vince Russo's podcast is so entertaining. And probably the best thing that I could think of to listen to out there. But if you're not into pro wrestling, you're probably not going to be that into it. And when I listen to Vince, Vince Russo and the things that he says and... The, the creativity that that man has uh, blows me away. I, I can never even come close in comparison to a genius mind like that. Uh, this guy had such an effect on my my early, late teen years, my developmental years, and I, the things that he was writing for the WWF and creating and the fact that he started that whole attitude movement in the first place uh, he's contributed so much to my entertainment and also inspiration doing the show because that's somebody that i look up to and how to create something amazing that people want to listen to and i have no idea why i brought that up just now i don't know why i'm talking about it (laughs) but sometimes vince will just get on the air and he'll just talk about something that he feels strongly about And he does it like he's cutting a promo. He does it like a wrestler. And 
uh, it's entertaining, even though it's just some guy screaming his crazy opinions at the microphone. Not that they're crazy, but obviously he feels very strongly about a lot of things. But that's me. I mean, there's a lot of other good podcasts out there. There's Joe Rogan, uh, another big inspiration. Uh, I said earlier when Monica was on that I think of Joe Rogan like he's the godfather of podcasting. He's really inspired a lot of people, me included, to put on a podcast. He showed us all that you can actually get people to listen and care and give a shit. I think that that's a big thing. And a lot of you aren't going to know what I'm talking about, but for those who are into podcasting or into the whole podcast world, you're going to know what I'm talking about. It's like Joe Rogan kind of made us think that it was possible to really have a following. And he's been an influence on this show. And I'll admit it. Why not? It's true. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's good to give credit to the people that came before you and did what you are doing and and opened up the door. So I think we should all give him props for the Joe Rogan podcast. Whether you like Joe Rogan's beliefs or his humor or his uh, comment, commentating or anything like that, it doesn't matter. I'm just talking about the guy's accomplishments. And, of course, Howard Stern. I mean, I've talked about Howard Stern so much on this show. Over and over again, I've talked about Howard and the influence that he's had on me and my love of radio and my love of comedy and podcasting and, and the influence, the influence that has influenced Ninja Shoes, has influenced End of Days Radio uh, to such a high degree. Uh, Howard is the king of all media, period. He's the best. He's the best guy that's ever done radio, period. And, of course, <laughs> Art Bell, right? How can I not throw that name out there? Another person that I've obviously shown a great deal of respect towards. I'm an Art Bell guy. I love listening to old Art Bell. I haven't done it a lot super recently, but he's the guy that... <laughs> I mean, how can you even put that into words? The intellectual platform that he created with Coast to Coast... The fact that he got so many people to open their minds to this stuff, the stuff we talk about on this show, and open the door for me and uh, this generation of podcasters to uh, go even further, to take things even deeper, into deeper waters. Uh, all the different things that are open the door to, now it's being picked up by a whole new generation. And I hope that he sees that. That is so amazing that that's going on. Oh my god, I'm sucking a lot of dick tonight, aren't I? <laughs> I should get my knee pads and my lip gloss. How disgusting. But I just wanted to, in all seriousness, I have no idea why I went off on that tangent. Maybe it's the caffeine. Maybe it's the marijuana. I don't know. But I think it's good to shout out to people that have influenced you and opened the door, and uh, it really treaded the way. The pioneers, when pioneers that are still actively doing the same thing now, that are entertaining people and continuing to create their own reality 
right? That's really what these guys have done. And that makes you think. And really that is what you are doing when you are trying to be successful at anything. You're trying to create a reality that serves some purpose of yours. I mean, come on, right? Crunchyroll. Are any of you guys on Crunchyroll? So Crunchyroll is this app. It's like you can you can use it for free or you can pay like six bucks a month, six, seven bucks a month, and you can watch anime anywhere using your phone. You don't have to go to a website and if you pay the monthly fee, there's no ads. That's how I've been watching Dragon Ball Super. For all of you out there that give a shit about Dragon Ball Super. Also, I tried Uber Eats. Excellent. Uber Eats. Excellent. You can get, like, anything from anywhere. If you're in the city, I don't know where they have it. I'm in Seattle. It's very techy here. So that's awesome that I'm able to use this Uber Eats thing. I hope it spreads everywhere. It's very convenient. Yeah, go get go get me some... McDonald's, you just click a couple buttons. Oh, I want some teriyaki. Click a couple buttons on your phone, and the stuff shows up. It's not even very expensive. It's amazing. <laughs> it's scary seeing where things are headed. So big thumbs up to Uber Eats. No, I'm not a paid advertiser. I'm just telling you guys out there that it's very convenient and fun to use. Uh, oh, man, there's so much to talk about. I should probably take a break. (laughs) No, let's keep going. Uh, I'm going to Comic-Con. Next month, I will be at Comic-Con in Seattle, Washington at the Convention Center. So those of you that would like to meet Daniel from End of Days Radio, I'm not going to have a booth or anything like that. I'm just going to be... Paying for the normal, <laughs> you know, the normal entry fee, and I'm just gonna walk around. But if you see me there, let's let's give each other high fives, okay? And if you're a really, really cute female, maybe we can hug and do Eskimo kisses. Cool, right? Cool. Uh, want to talk about soccer? Congratulations to the Seattle Sounders and the soccer lovers of this area. Their sport is growing very quickly. It's good to see that soccer has gained in popularity so much. It's known as football in the UK. Um, A lot of people think that soccer and people that play soccer are pussies. I disagree. I think that soccer is... It's athletic on a whole nother level. And if you actually pay attention to a game and watch it, you see the brutal stuff that these guys go through and how crazily good your cardiovascular athleticism has to be to even remotely play a sport like that. Uh, You can really gain a whole appreciation. So shout out to the people that are helping that sport grow and prosper. Very popular worldwide, but often overshadowed by the NFL or the NBA or the WWE or the UFC for you MMA fans out there. 
Um, oh, watch the Royal Rumble. Very entertaining. Shinsuke Nakamura one. Very cool. Nice to see a Japanese guy prosper in the WWE. Okay, I've got some letters to read. Sorry for the pause. <laughs> uh, first one, here we go. Dear Daniel, thank you for showing me that I am a god. I just landed a great new job and have lost 30 pounds since you taught me to unleash my true potential. What is next? Question mark. Bending spoons? Question mark. From Jason A. Hmm. Very cool to hear, Jason, eh? I see you have subscribed to my my program of becoming a god and losing weight and bending spoons. Good job. And also shout out to EA Coetting, who turned me on to his whole program of awakening the god within. Definitely got to give credit to him for coming up with such a great belief system where you believe the truth, that you are God. Next one. Hi, end of days. I heard you talking about Dragon Ball in your last episode. Who do you feel is the worst Dragon Ball character and who is the best? Question mark. Oh, that's easy to answer. I'd have to say Vegeta is the best by far. He's just a badass all around. Uh, he's brutal, and he's he's hilarious in the way that he's brutal and just all around cool. Uh, worst, I'd have to go with a character called Pan, who was Goku's granddaughter. And if you listen to the English dub of that show, you'll know what I'm talking about. Just really annoying, grating voice, very annoying. Kind of ruined that whole GT series. Uh, next one. Ooh, this one's nasty. I don't know if I should read this. I don't think I'm going to read this one. I'm not going to read that. That's too negative towards me. <clears throat> okay. Fine, I'll read it. Daniel, you always say that you are not PC... And you're about free speech, but your Trump bullshit proves you are a closet homophobe, total racist, and you obviously hate all women as well. 